Draco Malfoy and the Mortifying Ordeal of Being in Love by Is This Self-Care? Narrated by S.E.P. Chapter 26. Mabon. Being irritating is a love language. As promised, the next day, Weasley flew to the manor to drop off the birthday gifts that had been sent to Granger's cottage. Granger had already popped off to her laboratory, so it was Draco who had the dubious privilege of receiving him. Weasley was not a dab hand at extension charms, which he demonstrated by arriving with a bulky burlap sack full of parcels, promptly heaved onto Draco's arms. Weasley panted. Took me ten minutes to pack up that lot. Popular witch, said Draco, clutching at the ponderous thing. Yeah, Weasley wiped sweaty hands onto his trousers and looked about. Hermione said that she's handling it all right, staying here. Funny that this ended up being the safest place for her, after all these years. I suppose. Thanks for doing this for her. You're really a decent bloke. Only a bit of a twat, after all. Draco had just opened his mouth to tell Weasley thanks and to piss off when Weasley added, She likes you, you know. Likes me? Genuinely, said Weasley. Thinks you're enormously competent, eminently respectable, generally marvelous. He took on a high, grangery voice. Rather brilliant, you know, Ron. You mustn't tease him. Can't even refer to you as the ferret without being corrected. This had an immense cheering effect on Draco, but he kept his face neutral. She does like to take up unfortunate causes. Yeah, she'll bung together a society for the protection of eminently respectable Malfoy soon. I reckon. Sperm. Suits you. So buoyed was Draco's mood that this insolence hardly rankled. He called Weasley a freckly fucker, but without rancor. Has she launched a house elf rebellion yet? asked Weasley. No, but I expect her to start agitating eminently. It's only been two nights. Yeah, she has loads of time to do damage. Weasley waggled his eyebrows as he looked about deviously for elves. I'd better be off. You're on the lab later? It's Humphreys this morning and Gogan to the PM. I'm with Potter at the safe house. Weasley tossed flu powder into the hearth. Right, the traps. Make up evil and borderline illegal, won't you? Obviously. Bye. Off you fuck. Weasley flew out. The bag in Draco's arms was heavy with expressions of love for Granger's friends and admirers. He felt the corners of books and the squishiness of clothing. Something cinnamony wafted through the burlap. He cast a few detection spells to ensure that there were no cursed or poisoned items within, and called Toopy to take the things to Granger's suite. He did not spend a single moment moodily musing upon a gift for Granger to outshine all of these offerings. The day passed in a series of visits to safe houses, where Draco and Potter hoped to lure any snooping baddies in with false indicators of Granger's presence. They created decoy Grangers, charmed to move about between various rooms, and set lights to turn on and off at night. They concealed a variety of wards and ensnarements around the properties. And yes, Draco's were crueler than Potter's. Potter had all the imagination of a whore clump. When they had thus baited five safe houses along with Granger's cottage, they returned to the office to meet with Tonks, who had spoken to Shacklebolt. Did he throw a full-on tanny? asked Potter. Tonks shook her head. No. It was quiet disappointment. He didn't threaten to sack me or Robard, so that was a positive. Come off it, said Draco. He'd never sack you for this. The Greyback resurgence was a bit of a shock, grimaced Tonks. He wasn't happy. Robards caught the worst of the bollocksing. He shouldn't have tried to keep things under wraps after the infant infector. Anyway, I've reassured him that Hermione is safe and will be continuing her work. He's asked to be kept apprised of the WTF's plans for the next full moon, and I'd like to participate in the next meeting, Potter, if you don't mind. A buzz in his pocket caused Draco's attention to drift. 
He glanced under the table to see a message from Granger. Humphreys is very chatty, said Granger. She is. A bit, said Draco. Worse than you. Everyone is worse than me. I am the best. Have you been apprised of the ailments of her entire extended family, said Granger. And Gogan? Very nice man. Good, said Draco, who did not grow jealous at all. Loud breather, said Granger. Man's broken his nose a few times. Rather whistly on the exhale, isn't it? Ask him to toot you a tune. He already is. Which song? There was a delay as Granger presumably paused to listen to Gogan. Old Lang Syne, I think. Festive, said Draco. Three more hours of this. I may go mad. Miss you terribly. We'll never be mean to you again. Draco's heart stopped beating at the sight of Miss you terribly. Then it resumed with disturbing vigor. Malfoy, would you kindly join us in the present, came the voice of Tonks. Draco looked up to find Tonks and Potter looking at him. He grew aware of a vague smile on his face and replaced it with a scowl. Tonks opened her mouth to launch a barbed query about what was holding his attention so pleasantly, but Draco was spared further explanation by a knock on the door. Is Malfoy in here? came the voice of Brimble, one of the junior Aurors. What is it? asked Draco. I've got something to show you, if you've got a moment. Tonks shooed Draco away with a lively gesture, as though glad of an excuse to rid herself of the dreamy-eyed idiot. Miss you terribly. Why did that give him such a pleasant, fluttery feeling? It kind of felt too nice to quash. Right, Brimble. Brimble was a young muggle-born witch who generally regarded Draco with a kind of fearful awe. Her specialty was surveillance and espionage. When Draco joined her at her desk, she nervously shuffled through a stack of papers and dropped her quill. So sorry for interrupting, she said. I thought it might be important. I've been monitoring Interpol's notices, and one of the persons of interest has just popped up. Which one? Gunnar Larson. Interpol has just linked him to a string of attacks. Your man is on some kind of an international rampage against researchers. They finally caught him on camera. She placed a stack of unmoving muggle photographs into Draco's hands. Here, these were taken at a laboratory in the Netherlands. Larson strangled the lead scientist. Draco examined the sequence of photographs, which were blurry, black and white, and shot from a high angle that made it difficult to discern what was happening. In the first photos, Larson's large form hovered over the white-coated body. Then he held the scientist's head between his hands for several more frames, conducting legitimacy, no doubt. The scientist appeared to raise an arm to defend himself, and then Larson's hands were at his throat. Is the scientist alive? Brimble rifled through more documents. Alive, but in critical condition. Hospitalized in Rotterdam. Who is he? He's, uh, wait, I've got it somewhere. An oncologist. That's a kind of muggle healer who, I know what an oncologist is. Brimble looked at him with surprise. Right, well, his name is Dr. Johan Dressen. Fuck. That had been one of Granger's co-speakers at the Oxford event. The Dutch National Police Corps is investigating, as are the Dutch Oars. They've been informed that we also have an interest in Larson. I've reached out to a colleague in Japan and America about other attacks. From the reports I've seen, it sounds as though he's been performing legitimacy on them and leaving them for dead. Draco took the file from Brimble. Well done. Tell me immediately if there's anything else. And I want to know if he comes into the country. Eyes on port keys and international flus. Brimble nodded as Draco swept away. That evening, Granger was welcomed into the dining table by a stack of photographs and a retelling of Brimble's findings. She blanched as she learned of the string of attacks and gasped in horror at the photograph of Dr. Dreesen. Draco didn't want to say, I bloody told you so, 
but something of the thought was clearly in his expression, because Granger made a rare admission. You were right about Larson. It gave Draco no pleasure. Well, perhaps a little pleasure. I'm always right. It was a monumental burden, always being right, but he bore it with his usual grace. What the hell is Larson playing at? asked Granger. What is wrong with him? I'd like to know, too. What is the arsehole looking for? Granger's brows were contracted into a worried line. If he's targeting researchers in my field, most of them are muggles. They'll be utterly incapable of defending themselves. Give me a list of likely targets. I'll inform their respective Auror HQs. All right. Granger stared at one of the photographs of Dreesen being throttled. She looked sick. Drago plucked it away and put it back in the file. It's not your fault. They sat in silence. Tubi materialized to serve dessert, which snapped them both out of their broody stupors. Granger took a long breath, as of one attempting to move on to the other matters, but with difficulty. Right, she said. We need to talk about Maybon. It's tomorrow, and we've got so many sites to visit. We need to be frightfully organized about it. As though Granger knew how to be any other sort of organized. Now it was her turn to plonk a pile of papers in front of Draco. She moved her chair closer, and her knee touched his thigh, which felt nice, and she ran through the itinerary with him. The wild, ancient names of the dolmens they'd be visiting rang off of her tongue. Bodewir, Henblaze, Tirmar, Pentarifan, Hellstone, Goward, Anadorn. Draco suppressed a shiver. There was magic in those names. There were twelve in all. Granger's itinerary included flu points and apparition points, often a little way away from the sites themselves, as they were built on major key lines too magically potent to operate directly onto. Granger suggested that they use side-along apparition when not fluing, in order to stay together and avoid magical depletion through so many repeated apparitions across the UK. They bickered over who would apparate whom. Granger wanted Draco to pursue his magic for detecting and dueling if needed. Draco wanted her to save hers to defend herself, and perhaps reattach his limbs in the case of a firefight. They decided to compromise by alternating, which left neither of them satisfied and both of them glaring at each other as though they had never dealt with such a bloody-minded fool in their lives. Now Granger bit her lip. We'll need to leave early tomorrow. I know you'll be thrilled. I am positively effervescent with joy. Brilliant. Frothing with it, Granger proposed the foul hour of seven o'clock. What? Bloody hell! Granger's eye roll was magnificent. Poor darling. It isn't that awful. Vile is what it is. Draco sighed a dramatic sigh and sat limply in his chair. I should have taken the troll porn. The what? asked Granger. Nothing. Never mind. Eat your tart. Eat your tart. I'd like nothing more. Good. Draco ate the tart in front of him, but he'd rather have been eating the one beside him. Yet another wearisome irony in the difficult life of Draco Malfoy. Draco awoke at the monumental, gruesome hour of six o'clock the next day to get ready. He bore the hardship with great fortitude, which he thought he ought to be praised for. He paid particular attention to his toilette that morning, desiring to achieve a certain look for the day's gallivanting. Dashing, yet elegant, adventurous, yet intrepid, but suave. His hair he arranged to look roguishly debonair. He wore his favorite boots, which he fancied gave him a swashbuckling kind of air. As he adjusted his hair in the mirror, Draco reflected that the prospect of spending an entire day with Granger, looking at mushrooms, should have provoked annoyance and true ennui. And yet, despite the hideous hour, Draco found himself rather looking forward to the excursion. 
At 6.55, satisfied with his look, Draco made his way to the entrance hall to find Granger. She was at the foot of the stairs, her hair in a high ponytail, her walking boots laced up tight, her eyes bright. Seeing her waiting for him, all kitted up in her walking things, was good. It gave Draco a pleasant sense of anticipation for adventure and argument, for treks through forests and accidental engagements and fleeing mad nuns, all in good company. He had missed this. Draco downed two coffees and four eggs, and they were ready to crack on. Granger led the way to the flu parlor. She, too, looked to be anticipating this newest gallivant with pleasure. Her smile was warm. Shall we carpe this DM? Let's. Granger threw the flu powder into the flames and spoke the name of their first waypoint. She stepped in closely, followed by Draco. And they were off. They fell into an enjoyable rhythm as they progressed through Granger's itinerary. At each stop, Draco's detection spell confirmed that they were alone, save for cows or sheep, and then Granger set to work, looking for the specific mushrooms and other plant matter that herbologist philosopher had decided to elaborate on, instead of something useful like bloody coordinates. The dolmens were large structures, still impressive despite their occasional collapsed states. Granger provided her usual historical commentary explaining that the monuments typically housed burial chambers and would have been covered entirely by a mound of earth thousands of years ago. They experienced every season imaginable as they progressed through Granger's list. Driving rain at Bodaware, glorious September sunshine at Taimar, and thick fog at Henblaze. The landscapes were breathtaking. In the morning, they discovered ancient woodlands and gnarled trees smelling of wild thyme, wide moorlands covered in millions of purple blossoms, and miles of rolling green turf disappearing into a hazy sky. In the afternoon, it was endless fells covered in bracken, domesticated pasture lands, and cliffs plunging into the sea at the end of the world. Draco's favorite bit was the disapparitions, the moments when Granger threaded her arm in his and clung to him, and he felt the sweep of her magic over him, or cloaked her in his, and the spin of the disapparition knocked them into one another and pressed them together. He couldn't read whether she felt the same. She hopped cheerily to his side every time, but she was joyous in her element today, and doing everything cheerily. Her cheeks were quite pink, and then again, the wind was whipping over the Isle of Anglesey, and the air was frosty in County Down. But one thing was for certain. Granger was happy. Draco felt that there could never have been a happier fungi hunter hop-skipping about these ancient sites. There was a jubilance in her hope about her, fed by the knowledge that this was the pent-ultimate step in her project. The end was in sight, and the world-changing would soon commence. Amongst the gorse in the autumn sweet air, the pack of lethal werewolves and the murderous Larson must have seemed far away to her. Problems for tomorrow's Granger, not today's. It gave him unaccountable pleasure to see her so happy. Now Granger approached him, shaking her head. Not here. Goward next. Direct apparition, my turn. Ready? Let's go. The spin, the squeeze, the warmth of her. Draco hoped for an awkward, slippery landing somewhere so that she could conveniently fall on top of him. But alas, their landing places had been selected by Granger and were therefore necessarily as level as one could ask for. The next dolmen was in a misty farmer's field, recently plowed. Draco's detection spells showed nothing but a smallish herd of deer where the field turned to forest. Granger quelched off, shin-deep in mud, towards the massive dolmen. Draco aimed a series of drying charms at one meter square patch of mud and stepped onto it to keep the worst of the muck off his boots. Then he alternated between keeping an eye on Granger and on the horizon. The herd of deer that Draco had detected drifted through the trees towards them. 
Their steps were soundless as they approached. Draco saw that their pelts were a golden white of oisin deer, the magical cousins of the red deer, rare creatures that only existed in this part of Ireland. Draco had never seen a live one. The lead stag paused when it saw Draco, its magnificent antlers sweeping upwards and losing themselves amongst the branches. The stag's assessment must have culminated in a decision that Draco posed no threat. It lowered its head to a nose the ground, as did the hinds behind it. Draco cast a few detection spells to satisfy himself that these deer weren't baddies who had developed excruciatingly specific animagi for the purpose of attacking Granger. They were not. He wasn't paranoid. He was just careful. Maybe a little bit paranoid. Draco glanced towards Granger to see that she, too, had noticed their company. She stood stock still, a piece of parchment in one hand and her wand in the other. Sunshine began to pierce through the mist, turning the muddy field into a glittering expanse of dew bejeweled with golden wheat stubble and the shining pelts of the deer. The retrieving mist meant that the deer had lost their cover. They turned back towards the safety of the trees and, wraith-like, disappeared into the forest. One, a smallish deer, a younger hind, was trailing the herd, limping badly. Oh, came Granger's voice, which told Draco that she, too, had spotted the creature. What's the matter with her? Her voice startled the herd into flight. The injured hind was left to follow, limping as quickly as she could. I suppose she's hurt, said Draco. We need to help her. Help her? It's a wild animal. Let nature take its course. Granger was unsurprisingly unwilling to follow this logical course of action. I didn't see any blood. The way she was dangling the leg, I think it's just a dislocation. So she'll be fine. No, she won't be able to put it back in herself. She'll die a slow and fear-filled death or be killed by something horrid. To Draco's enormous irritation, Granger began to quelch toward the trees. Granger, called Draco in a voice of great authority and menace. She took no notice, obviously. Let's just stun her so I can have a look. They're terribly rare, almost hunted to extinction because of their pelts. We can't just let her die. We absolutely can, said Draco. Have you forgotten the beastly itinerary you've put together? Of course not. I built an extra time for contingencies. And this is a contingency, is it? Yes, it's a bloody deer, of which there remain less than 300 living specimens. She'll die if we don't do something. Hermione Granger, the most irritating witch of her age, continued into the forest. Draco swore and kicked an innocent mushroom, which had led a blameless life and did not deserve it. I do not approve, said Draco, stamping into the wet forest after Granger. Granger was beginning to sound shirty. I remember with vivid distinctions not having requested your approval. Haven't you any empathy? I am fresh out. Could you stop being such a bloody fucking do-gooder for one day in your life? Could you find a single ounce of compassion in that fermented porridge you call a soul? I have loads of compassion for my boots. Your boots, came the reply. This is an act of kindness. It's a monstrous bother. And where was Granger's compassion for his hair and robes, if you please? Why were they wading into a bog? In the trees ahead, the golden hind glimmered. The poor creature was doing her best to get away, but her three-legged sprint had exhausted her, and Draco and Granger soon gained ground. Granger's stunners were flying in pursuit. Stupefy! Stupefy! You would be so easy to lure into a trap, panted Draco, catching up. Baddies just need to find a bunny with a hurt footsie. If you'd help me, this would be over faster. Fine. Stupefy. Draco's stunner hit the hind in the back, 
to absolutely no effect. Ooh, right, said Draco. Magic-absorbing pelts. Damn it, said Granger. I didn't think they'd be quite so potent. Granger trained tactics and transformed the muddy ground into a few meters of literal swamp, which half-swallowed the hind until she was stuck. When they were about three meters away, Draco and Granger fired off an immobilis and a sleeping charm, respectively, neither of which took effect, even at this close range. Incredible, said Granger, as though this was an intriguing scientific phenomenon and not a catastrophic death sentence for Draco's look. With strength borne by panic, the hind pulled herself out of the mud and plunged between the two of them, hoping to make her getaway between the lumbering humans. In a masterful display of athleticism and idiocy, Draco leapt toward her. He managed to grab one slender hoof, then it slipped out of his grasp. He splashed into the swamp on his knees. It was in his hair. His hair. He was going to murder both of them. He would have venison for dinner and tart for dessert, and life would be simple again. Granger conjured a rope that snaked after the deer, but it was magically repelled the moment it touched her pelt. We just want to help you, called Granger. Stand still, you stupid bloody quadruped, shouted Draco, less kindly. The creature did not, judging by her extra burst of speed, spick English. Granger waved her wand and spoke an incantation, and a wall of earth surrounded the three of them. There, said Granger, no more running. The hind took her new surroundings into view. She was in a circular earthen pen. Draco leapt at her again, hoping to sweep her legs out from under her and lie her down to be examined. The hind dodged. Granger darted at her with her arms flung wide. The hind capered to the side. At this point, the creature seemed to conclude that they were absolute amateurs. She appeared to be making sport of their pursuit. Dangling leg and all. She waited until Draco or Granger got near to her, and then dashed off again, churning muck into their faces. "'I am going to skin her myself and make a bloody cloak of her,' snarled Draco through the mud. A swish of Granger's wand brought the earthen walls further inward. Soon there were only two or three square meters of space to step on, all of it swamp. They caught her. Draco laid the creature down and held her three good legs in a double-fisted grasp, as all attempts to conjure ropes or chains slid off. Her injured legs stuck out at an unnatural angle behind her. The hind gave out a heartbreaking bleat of fear and trembled, as though anticipating some horrid end at their hands. It's all right, it's all right, shushed Granger. Somehow, muddied and disheveled, she managed to look perfectly angelic. We aren't going to hurt you. This mean man was joking. I'd sooner make a cloak of him. Draco had no coherent reply to offer, as he was spitting out mud. Granger felt about the deer's hind end, muttering about femurs. The deer kicked a free leg and coated Granger's hair into liberal gob of mud. Granger closed her eyes and breathed. "'What are you doing?' asked Draco. "'Repenting? I hope so.' "'It's fine,' said Granger, throwing her sodden hair over her shoulder. "'She's afraid. It's not her fault.' The creature did look pathetic. Draco's conscience, which was largely absent from his life, prickled at the sight of her fear-filled black eyes. He fell into an ill-considered lapse of kindness and stroked the hind's dainty head. Granger gave him a quick look of surprise before casting a diagnostic spell. It is a dislocation. Brilliant. We'll need to put her to sleep. She'll need to be completely relaxed. Then we'll do a bit of tug-of-war. At the sight of Granger's wand, the creature sighed, a look of absolute pathos on her face as she prepared for death. They poked about the deer until they found a patch of new skin uncovered by her magical pelt, a velvety smooth spot just under her chin. Granger stunned her. 
She consulted the diagnostic schema, and then, under her directions, they began the tug-of-war. Draco was instructed to lock his arms around the creature's pelvis and hold it as steady as he could. Granger wrestled with the leg, trying to find the magical angle where the head of the femur would slide back in over the ridge of the acetabulum. For a long minute, Granger tugged the leg, folded it, twisted it, pulled it, and then, finally, there was a soft click. Yes, said Granger. You did it? I think so. Granger flexed the hind's leg, which bent smoothly now and no longer lay at that unnatural angle. Granger cast another diagnostic spell. Perfect. Granger enervated the hind, who found her feet trembling. She backed away from them, putting her weight evenly on all four legs. She was sound again. They lowered the earthen walls. The creature galloped off without a backwards glance, lavishing one final splash of filth at them in the loo of a farewell. It went into Draco's mouth and up Granger's nose. There's some bloody fucking gratitude, said Draco, spitting with every word. Granger sneezed. They looked at each other wide-eyed, mud-streaked, stinking abominably. Your face! Your hair! I... They collapsed into hysterics and laughed until they couldn't breathe. Granger was still shaking with giggles as they apparated to the next site, the Devil's Den, and her high spirits endured because there, amongst long grasses under a soft blue sky, she found the magical combination of fungi and flora that she had been looking for. Finally, said Granger. Yes! She kissed a mushroom. Mushrooms got more action than Draco. It was fine. And launched into a flurry of activity. She pulled mysterious paraphernalia out of her pockets and began to set something up between the dolmen's great stones. As for Draco, well, once lost, one's dignity is difficult to find again, but Draco did his utmost to recover his. He had to concede that his look was ruined. He cast Scourgeify and Aguamenti until he was, at the very least, no longer a walking poo. Then he cast a few Aguamenti at Granger as she bustled about, just for sport, and also because she had kissed a mushroom instead of him. He stopped after her squeals got shrieky and she snarled, Malfoy! Because he did not want her to turn him into an actual poo out of pique. What are we collecting here? said Draco, sauntering towards the instruments that Granger was setting out. Light, said Granger, holding a kind of sextant up to the sky. Light? Yes. Standard sanitatum requires exposure to sunlight in a churchyard. For the proto-sanitatum, we need autumnal equinox light collected at a tomb far more ancient, captured just as the sun passes the celestial equator. A shallow, mirrored bowl gleaming amongst the instruments. Runes were carved down its sides. Granger played with the sextant and a bronze compass and tilted the bowl further, so that it was aimed upwards, but towards the west. In her hand was a clicky tube thing. What's the clicky tube thing? A deluminator, said Granger. Ron lent it to me. Bless him. Granger lay herself down on the ground next to the silver bowl and used the sextant again, making minute adjustments to the bowl's direction. Then she rose and clambered upon one of the dolmen's massive stones and perched herself there. Now what? asked Draco. Now we wait, said Granger. This year, the autumnal equinox takes place at 6.20 p.m. Oh, we've got loads of time. We do. We struck lucky, really, finding it on the sixth try. They had a picnic on the rock. Thick egg and crest sandwiches prepared by Henriette. The devil's den, said Draco, looking upwards at the massive capstone above them. What's so devilish about it? Local tradition has that a demon could be summoned here by pouring the water into these. 
Granger pointed at dish-shaped recesses in the rock. It would appear at midnight to have a drink. Only water? I sort of demon. I would have expected the blood of infants at the very least. Perhaps we can leave him some. Water, I mean. Not infant blood. I haven't any. When they finished their picnic, Granger rubbed at her face. In spite of Draco's sporadic efforts, she was still plastered with muck. Grimes streaked across her cheeks like war paint. I think I prefer human medicine, she said with a bit of primness as she aimed Scourgify and Evanesco at herself. There's less chasing about of patients. It was fun, though. Fun. Oh, yes. I positively adore going arse over tit in swamps. Granger tutted, then leaned over to fix his collar. A bit of dirt makes you look dashing. Draco was nonplussed. Amusement made its way into Granger's face, and it was affectionate. Draco did not know what to do with it. But your hair. An absolute lost cause today, said Granger. Speak for your bloody self. They whiled away the rest of the evening with talk. They insulted each other a few times and snarled at each other a few times, but it was all right, because his insults made her laugh, and the warmth in her eyes softened the edges of hers. And they were arguing, or were they flirting, really? As the equinox drew closer, Granger began to get fidgety. She leapt from the rock, checked the position of her silver bowl again, took out the deluminator, put the deluminator back, calibrated the bowls again, and began to pace. Sorry, she said when she noticed that Draco was watching her. I've practiced this so many times, you know, but this is real. And if I bodge it, the entire project is set back by a year. But I won't bodge it. But if I did... You won't, said Draco. I won't. She flung up a spell to tell the time. 6.15 p.m. Granger knelt next to the silver bowl. The breeze danced among the long grasses. A charm of goldfinches took flight. 6.18 p.m. The smell of autumn drifted deliciously around the dolmen, heavy with fresh-cut hay. 6.19 p.m. The air grew thick with magic. 6.20 p.m. The equinox struck. The sun's rays hit the mirrored bowl, reflected upon themselves thousands upon thousands of luminous times, and formed a sphere of pure light. Granger, kneeling next to the bowl, clicked the deluminator. The ball of light was sucked into the instrument. The sun set. And just like that, it was done. Granger carefully slipped the deluminator into her pocket. Then she stood, tilted her head up, spread out her arms, and said, Yes! She spun in a circle, a small figure under a big sky, laughing her happiness into the heavens. Her spin swung her into Draco, and she turned the collision into an embrace, into which, on tiptoe, she pressed all of her joy and relief. He indulged. He held her just as tightly, his favorite old enemy, this brilliant do-gooder, this stupid crush. She looked up at him, and he looked down. Their cheeks met in a wet, muddy press, and then so did their lips. It was the most innocent, naive kiss that Draco had ever stumbled into. It dumped an entire liter of endorphins into his system. They broke away and gasped apologies to each other because obviously it had been an accident. They carried on as though nothing had happened, because he was her oar, and she was his principal, and they were both consummate professionals. But something had happened. And Granger hadn't leapt away screaming, you know. She hadn't wiped her mouth, she hadn't spat, she had just felt warm and breathed once, and now she blushed and busied herself with packing. Draco's brain reveled in the attainment of a new memory, of lips chapped by the wind and the taste of salt and earth. Granger assembled her instruments. That's me bond sorted, she said, relief in her voice. I can hardly believe it. A triumph, said Draco, and he meant it. 
a small triumph. You're working towards a bloody big one. Yes. The last of Mabon's son caressed the top of the distant trees, exalted in a scarlet and gold blaze. Far above the trembling grasses and the rolling hills, the moon rose. Granger finished packing and fell onto her bum between the dolman's colossal stones. She sat there for a long time, her hands in the earth behind her, her face to the sky, breathing relief. Then she caught his eye and smiled at him. The great wall of quashing was obliterated. Something vast and nameless swelled in his heart. This witch was... This witch was... He hadn't the words for it, but he was struck by it. It wanted to engulf him. The sphere of light glowed still, but it wasn't in the deluminator. It was in him. Chapter 27. Theo's Party. Author notes. It wouldn't be a proper rom-com without an accidental kiss. Right. We have finally got to Theo's party. I've been waiting to share this chapter for a long time, so please enjoy. I do forgive my Beauty and the Beast moments. I am weak. So, the quashing. It was objectively not going well. As Draco preferred to fault anyone but himself for his problems, he laid the blame squarely upon Granger, who had no business smiling at him. Frankly, how dare she? Obnoxious behavior. Thoughtless. Rude, really. Granger carried on in a cheerful ignorance of her culpability. As the days went by, she settled into life at the manor with surprising ease, perhaps because she was rarely actually there. She arrived in time to inhale a late dinner, most nights, and was awake early again the next day, dragging a bleary-eyed Draco behind her as she frolicked off to save the world. Potter and Weasley visited Granger often. The three of them shared long late-night conversations piled upon each other in some salon or other. Draco joined only when specifically invited in by Granger. He spent enough time with those two duffers at the office that he didn't relish more of their company. He also found them rather too watchful, Potter in particular, not that there was anything to see here. Even in his wildest lapses into truth, Draco would never admit how much he enjoyed Granger's admittedly sporadic company at the manor. The way her presence filled the great rooms with warmth. The pleasure of dinnertime for repartee. Walking through a corridor and knowing that she'd just passed there because of the lingering smell of soap. Even her cat was a decent addition to the house. Late one night, a mrar at the foot of Draco's bed informed him that the creature had somehow entered his rooms and was calling plaintively for him. Then it had looked at him in a self-pitying kind of way that Draco realized that it was lost. He had walked it back to Granger's suite, knocked, and told her, I believe this is yours, as the cat bounded into familiar territory. Granger had been doing yoga and was wearing those clothes and was sweaty and breathless and shining and smelled like salt and candle smoke. She had gasped, Oh, Krunks, my darling, you shouldn't go too far. And a trickle of perspiration had run down between her breasts, which Draco did not look at. Anyway, the cat was all right. Draco never explicitly admitted to himself, but behind the quashing, in a secret, stupid, soppy part of his soul, he wished that they could share more quiet moments together uninterrupted by screams of pain at the A&E or swatty graduate students at her laboratory. But perhaps it was better this way. Perhaps anything else would be too much. He had often wondered what pushed so many of his friends to marriage in the smallness of domesticated bliss. But sometimes, when Granger came home and smiled a hello and sat next to him at the table, sometimes for a brief moment he understood. Those moments were a glimpse of something he didn't know he wanted. But they were fleeting, and the fleeting vanished, and she went to bed and left him with a sense of loss and something that he had never had in the first place. He had one such moment on a rainy October day, 
It was a Sunday, and miracle of miracles, both he and Granger were off. By the time Draco made it to the dining room, Granger was having lunch, but she kindly called it brunch as she waved him to a chair. Draco asked for porridge, unfermented, from the kitchens. Granger sat cross-legged in her chair, one hand occupied with her fork, the other with a foldy computer surrounded by silver pucks. Draco had just settled in to enjoy the quiet and the company when the moment was interrupted by Theo's owl, who dropped two identical envelopes over the table, one in Granger's lap, one directly into Draco's porridge. Granger opened hers to discover an invitation from Theo. She showed it to Draco, who saw that Theo had taken great pains with it. The script was beautiful. The parchment was of the highest grade. The ink shimmered luxuriously. Dear healer professor Dr. Granger, I understand that you are to be thanked, blamed, for our dear Draco's continued presence on this earth. A few friends of Draco's and I would relish the opportunity to celebrate your medical tour de force in person. I know it may come as a surprise, but he does have some friends. That being said, it will necessarily be an intimate gathering, as he has only six. If you would be amenable to joining us, we would request the pleasure of your company at Knot House this Saturday at 7 o'clock. In the bottom corner of the invitation was a note. Dress. Black tie. Draco's soggy envelope enclosed a note that made for rather a sharp contrast, scrawled in Theo's usual ineligible handwriting, and written in biro. Dear fucko, lost my jotter, hence missive through ancient means. Drinks and delights at mine this Saturday at 7. I invited Granger. Come or I will kill you. Kisses. Theo. P.S. Invitation list enclosed for your edification. A crumpled napkin had been shoved into the envelope with the following information. Granger, Pansy and Longbottom, Blaze, Davies and Wife, Luella, crossed out, abroad, Flint, Draco, I suppose. Draco tossed the note and napkin to Granger, who read Theo's illegible missive with her eyebrows raised. Goodness, we'd almost have to send this to Bletchley Park to have it deciphered. Does your correspondence with your friends typically involve death threats? Yes, and we attempt murders once or twice a year. It's a kind of tradition. Granger nodded as though this was entirely unsurprising and turned to examine the guest list. Any dodgy histories here? Only the last one. Hmm. Oh, all about him. What about secret werewolves? Any of those? I bloody well hope not. I'd go first and have a poke about their heads if you decided to go. You'd let me go? asked Granger. I'm not your goaler, said Draker. Not house is quite as well protected as the manor and I'd be with you the entire time. And also, Theo had promised dancing and snuggling. And there it was, a textbook example of why some things between ors and principles were prohibited. His entire security analysis had been predicated on the potential for fucking snuggling. Draco opened his mouth to say that, on second thoughts, Granger probably oughtn't go. But Granger was now tapping at her lip. Black tie, I'll have to think about a dress. Draco closed his mouth. Draco and Granger arrived to flew to Knot House separately, to keep up the pretense that they were each in their own homes. Draco was to go first to scope the place out and confirm that there were no rogue werewolves on the premises. This ended up being a good idea, as Henriette got wind of the party and cloistered herself with Granger all afternoon and into the evening. By the time Draco was ready to leave, neither the witch nor the elf had emerged from the guest suite. There was only Toopy to see Draco off in all of his black tie resplendence. Draco flew to Knot House, at half seven. As he shook off the soot, Theo appeared to greet his esteemed guest. Thank you for coming, Draco. I know it's not something that you've been doing very much of. Draco and Theo entered the salon, where the small group of guests was already deep in conversation. Draco did a spot of unobtrusive legilimency as he greeted them. No one had any naughty intentions except for Longbottom and Pansy, 
who intended to find a secluded bathroom for a quick shag. Gods, muttered Draco instead of hello. Sorry, said Longbottom. Pansy raised an eyebrow. Nothing. How are you? After brief small talk, Draco moved to Davies and his wife, Audrielle. Davies was thinking about where to hide his newest broom from his wife. His wife was missing the baby they had left all of twenty minutes ago, and wondered how early they could politely escape to home. Zabini, in an excellent fettle, had his mind upon a brainy brunette. However, before Draco could disembowel the man where he sat, he noticed Zabini's plus one, Padma Patil, radiant in a turquoise gown. Zabini gave Draco one of his insufferable smirks. Patil's surface-level thoughts were of Zabini, mostly that he was a bit twattish, but she would endure him because he was also funny and a decent in bed. You're too good for Zabini, said Draco to Patil. Oh, I know, said Patil with a wide smile. Zabini laughed. Flint was at the bar. His thoughts were bent on cajoling the house elves into bringing into out Theo's most prized bottles. That completed Draco's survey of the guests. He was satisfied that Granger could join the gathering safely and sent her a jot to that effect. Granger's answer came a moment later. They're in ten. Henrietta's a bully. Draco began to find himself buzzing with anticipation. Half nervous. Why? Half pleasant. Flint waved Draco towards him. What are you drinking? A G&T. Make it stiff. The house elf behind the bar squeaked. Yes, sir. Give him Theo's best stuff, said Flint, clapping Draco on the shoulder. We are celebrating Draco's survival tonight. Theo strode over and attempted to elbow Flint out of the way, with limited success. Pipsy, do not let this man be rate, persuade, or otherwise impel you to open that vault. Of course not, sir, said the elf with a distrustful look at Flint. He took abominable liberties with my collection last time, said Theo to Draco. Horrible man. Flint, unabashed, took his drink and blew Theo a kiss before joining Davies. Pipsy, the house elf, presented Draco with his G&T, very stiff. He approved. Any idea when we might expect your guardian angel? asked Theo, glancing towards the alcove outside the salon, where the flue hearth flickered. She did say she was coming. Having a clue, shrugged Draco. They joined the others at the sofas. Draco kept up a passable stream of conversation, and his attention kept drifting to the flue. He was nervous. Why was he nervous? Finally, the flames turned green, and Granger's form spun into existence within, and she was deposited upon the hearth stones. Ah, said Theo, who had apparently been watching the fire with equal attention, our guest of honor. He leapt to his feet to usher Granger into the salon. She was besieged by Longbottom, hugs, Padma, more hugs, Pansy, cheek kiss, and Zabini, firm handshake. Draco, being the cool and self-possessed sort, whose heart rate had certainly not accelerated, merely raised his glass to her from the sofa. She gave him a small smile. Draco turned his gaze back to Flint, without hearing anything that the man was saying, because, oh no, Granger was wearing a black gown, and it was low in the back, and there was a slit in it up her thigh, and her hair was swept to the side, showing off that part of her neck that looked the most delicious, and Flint had just asked him a question, and he had no idea what was going on. She had a rose in her hair. What? said Draco. Sorry, I couldn't hear you over the sound of the ice in my glass. Bollocks, said Flint with a smirk. He inclined his head towards Granger. You're distracted. Draco flicked a V at him and sipped his drink. Don't get shirty with me, said Flint. I'm not the one who went all daft and dewy-eyed in the middle of a conversation. Me? Dewy-eyed? Absolute rot. I'm just preoccupied. Give your head a wobble and give her a proper hello then, Mr. Preoccupied. Fuck off, Draco rose and strode to the bar. I need a refill. After opening greetings and chit-chat, 
Ranger, Longbottom, and Patil formed a small group and got to talking about plants. A thrill. Pansy perched herself upon the arm of Longbottom's chair and looked on with an affectionate sort of ennui, twirling her fingers through her husband's hair. Draco wanted someone to twirl his hair, but her hands were occupied with a spirited description of some sort of fungus. He listened with one ear as Davies asked his immediate audience if they had seen the cannons get battered by the puddle mirror on Thursday. No Quidditch talk, called Pansy across the room. It stifles me. Granger looked amused. You can just keep fingering your husband, retorted Flint with a brusque wave. We'll keep it to a whisper. Always the height of class was Flint. Pansy smirked and began a more vigorous massage of Longbottom's head, who, for his part, had gone rather red. Pipsy the house elf served hors d'oeuvres and refilled everyone's drinks. Flint and Sabini got to arm wrestling over something. Flint won. Davies shared a few ministry scandals, including a new one about what really went on in the love room at the Department of Mysteries. Theo flirted outrageously with anyone unmarried, including Granger, Patil, Flint, and Zabini. He had long ago determined that Draco was a lost cause, but nevertheless made the occasional sporting overture. When there was a lull in the conversation, Theo rose and tapped his glass. I would like to propose a toast, he said, catching Draco's eye with a naughty grin. There was a stir as everyone rose, variously gathered up their skirts and drinks, and came to stand around Theo and Draco in a circle. Granger was nudged forwards by Longbottom on one side and Patil on the other. Incidentally, Longbottom's hair was now a disaster, and Draco almost reconsidered his wishes for the twirl of feminine fingers. As you know, said Theo, looking solemn, our Draco is afflicted by a chronic form of stupidity. There were grave mutters of tragic, heartbreaking, and poor wretch. A chronic form of stupidity for which there is no known cure. His most recent lapse involved a spot of mano-a-mano -mano combat with a nundu, followed by a casual jaunt straight into a jet of its venom. Everyone shook their heads at the poignant tale. Draco contemplated Theo's murder. Enter Hermione Granger, said Theo, holding his glass towards the witch in question, who lurked a pretty combination of flustered and pleased. Savior of idiots and champion of morons since, I believe, age 11. That's when you met Potter, right? Thanks to her quick thinking and knowledge and, um, rather complicated muggle sciency things that I shan't attempt to explain, not because I don't understand them, but because you lot won't. Draco is still with us, free to continue being recklessly stupid for the remainder of his life, however short, not too short, we hope. And so I propose a toast to the triumph of modern medicine, to old enemies and new friends, to Draco Malfoy for being alive, and to Hermione Granger for saving his life. There was a resounding laugh-filled cheers. Draco found himself being jostled and slapped on the shoulder and punched in the ribs, and some oaf from the deepest circles of Cretanhood must his hair. Meanwhile, Granger was surrounded by a delicate crowd of people gently tapping their glasses to hers. And when you've discovered a cure for stupidity, do let us know, said Pansy. I will, grinned Granger. Tell us, what do you think of Draco, now that you've got to know him a bit, asked Theo. Was he a good patient? He does grow on you, said Granger, with a latent kind of affection, as though Draco was some sort of parasite that had taken up residence on her person and begun to endear itself to her. Show us the scar, mate, said Flint. Draco, hero that he was, condescended to do so. He undid his bow tie and opened his collar, and there was a gratifying chorus of, ooh, at the sight. Could the good professor explain what we're looking at? asked Zabini, observing Draco's neck. Granger, who had been half-watching over her shoulder, straightened, and got professory. She stood next to Draco, her heels put her face at a very interesting distance to his, by the way, and began. Of course, 
This is developing into a lovely example of scar contracture. You see here along the sides the pulling together of the tissues. That's a typical presentation. The edges of the wound contract around the damaged skin, and it draws nearby tissue inwards. Malfoy is lucky. This one is small and won't affect his mobility. Bigger ones come with those sorts of challenges. The rest was lost on Draco, who was presently enjoying some interstellar travel because Granger's fingers kept brushing at his neck. Theo shook his head at Draco. You absolute maniac. You're lucky to be alive, much less ponting about drinking all of my best booze. Longbottom queried Granger on the characteristics of the venom, Patil on the treatment, Zabini on where one might obtain undue venom for purposes that he couldn't disclose. Granger's lecture ended and there was a general mingling and drink refilling and eating. Drago did not bother to do his necktie up. An untied bow tie, a scar, and an open collar gave one a devil-may-care sort of look that he thought quite suited him. A gathering was beginning to form at the far end of the salon. Draco sauntered over, scotch in hand. Flint had either bullied or seduced Theo into opening a bottle to see what the fuss was about. There was an ornate gilded frame on the wall, and within the frame? The splatter of wine from Draco's frothy wing-fest a month ago. Theo had added a small inscription beside the frame. The turbulence of the soul. 21st century. Mixed media. Artist unknown. Theo looked upon it fondly. Do you like it? There's an elegance to it, said Patil, tilting her head to the side. Very modern, said Pansy. I therefore don't understand it. What do you make of it, Hermione? asked Theo. Granger considered the oeuvre. It's very, uh, expressionist. Kandinsky, but drunk, proposed Patil. Can you feel the restrained passion Theo gripped at his breast? The confusion? The frustration? There's something I like about it, said Granger. A kind of botheration. A kind of self-denial, I think, said Theo, his fingers on his chin. And you, Draco, thoughts on my newest acquisition. Draco glared at Theo, the cheekiest twat who had ever twatted. I didn't realize that you were such a patron of the arts. I like to encourage genius when I see it. So many of these young artists don't know their own potential. Theo amused himself for a few more minutes, probing the ladies of their interpretations of the work and their opinions on the artist's choice of materials. He was given to understand that the paint had been rather expensive and aged 30 years before application. An irritated Draco retreated to the safety of Davies, Flint, and Quidditch. What's got you looking like so much shit in your kettle? asked Flint. Help me with this, said Draco, passing him a bottle. Gladly. With Flint and Davies' assistance, Draco emptied Theo's cherished bottle in revenge. When Theo had exhausted his fount of amusement with the ladies, he called the room at large. Shall we dance? There was clapping and a chorus of yeses. Wands were raised to clear a space, and music filled the room, and Zabini charmed the chandelier above them to spin as Theo dimmed the lights. The dance did not go as planned in Draco's head. To begin with, by some twist of fate, or unspoken mutual agreement he didn't know, he and Granger danced with everyone except each other. Patil, Adriel, and Pansy each took a spin with Draco. Meanwhile, seeing Granger in Flint's arms made Draco wish to garrote the man with his own bow tie. Seeing her in Zabini's clutches invited thoughts of suffocation with one of the sofa cushions. And Theo, Draco had half a mind to smash his glass into a shiv and stab him. Longbottom was fine, however. There was spinning, there was dipping, there was some ill-advised lifting of ladies by half-drunk men, and once of a man, Theo, by a very drunk woman, Pansy, there was laughter. Then Theo, who seemed far more sober than he was letting on, drew attention to the fact that Draco hadn't even had a proper dance with his savior, which was unacceptable. To Draco's annoyance, he and Granger were pushed together, 
and everyone gathered about and danced with them around them, and it was not at all the intimate vision that Draco had daydreamed about to excess. He and Granger held each other stiffly. Granger looked annoyed under her smile. He trod on her foot, and she trod on his. They snarled at each other. Draco said that her feet were so small that if he was treading on them, it must be because she was wedging hers under his on purpose. Granger said that if she was treading on his, it was because one couldn't help stepping on Draco's feet if one was in the same room as him, given their surface area. And why isn't your tie done up? asked Granger in a techie whisper. Because you were using me as a specimen for your demonstration, muttered Draco. Fix it. Draco took this insinuation that Granger did not approve of his devil-may-care suave look as a personal affront. You fix it, said Draco, equally techy. I don't know how to tie bow ties. I'll show you when we've been released from this tyranny. Perhaps you can learn something for once. Me? Learn something? For once? The remainder of their dance went on just as harmoniously. After two or three songs, they were freed from the circle and able to stand a little apart from the group and sip drinks and pretend not to be aggravated by... Well, everything. Granger bit a samosa, as she thought as it personally wronged her. Draco had a spirited battle with a cocktail shrimp. Right, said Draco, reaching for his tie. Since you care so much. Granger observed him as he demonstrated the knot, with a sort of annoyed focus. Have you got it? asked Draco. Yes. Draco pulled it undone again. Show me. Granger spoted it into her glass. What? You didn't tell me there was going to be a test? Marked out of ten. A test? A specific disaster named Theo popped into being next to Draco. Ooh, let's see how you do, Hermione. But I wasn't watching. I mean, I was watching, but not... Anyway, all right, I'll have a go. Granger tottered closer and made an attempt. Draco couldn't even enjoy a bit of it because two more idiots came by in the form of Zabini and Longbottom. What's going on over here? asked Zabini. She's tying the knot, said Theo. With who? Draco. Ooh. What's happening? asked Pansy. They're tying the knot, said Zabini. Patil arrived. What are we doing? Draco and Hermione are tying the knot, said Theo. I'm tying a knot, knot, said Granger. Patil looked confused. A knot knot? A bow tie, said Granger with great patience. That kind of a knot, not knot. Flint arrived. Who's tying the knot? Hermione is, with Draco. I am not, said Granger. No, I'm not, said Theo. Draco informed them all that he hated them. Granger stepped back and looked cynically at her handiwork. I'm not quite certain that's a pass. Draco examined the bow tie in a nearby mirror. Mm, six out of ten. How can you be so cruel to Hermione? asked Theo. She tried so. Granger made a substantial positive contribution to Draco's mood by saying, I suppose I'll have to practice more on him. Draco nodded his bow tie to his usual standard and made a note to ensure that Granger was provided with opportunities for self-improvement. There was a migration from the dance floor to the bar for more drinks. Everyone grew pleasantly sloshed on their tipple of choice. The expensive scotch in Draco's veins made him relaxed and languorous. Pansy and Longbottom disappeared for a longish time and returned looking only slightly disheveled. Davies and wife made their exit through the flue. At the bar, Theo began to mess about with cocktails. He was swirling his wand over a bowl of something white and frothy. Right, which of you wants to try my newest creation? Pipsy, the house elf, set out crystal champagne flutes, looking excited. She poured a generous measure of rosé champagne into every one. What kind of cocktail? asked Pansy, observing the proceedings. I call it Champagne de Amore, said Theo. There's nothing Italian about it. I just thought it sounded sexy. Pansy propped her elbows onto the bar to watch and was joined there by Patil. 
Granger looked a combination of curious and cynical and kept her distance. Theo pulled out a small vial and held it up. The secret ingredient. Let's see how well you lot remember your potions. He poured the vial into the bowl of white mousse. Steam sizzled upwards to graceful spirals. That's amortentia, gasped Patil. Messing about with controlled substances, are we? asked Draco. You're a cheeky little thing, said Flint. Hmm, amortentia gives it a certain... Theo's mouth squeezed into the pucker of a Brit about to speak French. Je ne sais quoi. Well, below the threshold for an actual dose of amortentia, of course. Just enough to taste positively delicious. We're microdosing on amortentia? asked Granger with a raised eyebrow. Only if you'd like to, said Theo. He added a dollop of the white foam to each champagne flute. Don't worry, doctor. In these minute concentrations, you won't fall in love with me. It's merely a flavor enhancer. Foolish of you to assume we aren't already in love with you, said Sabini. Theo blew him a kiss. The row of champagne flutes sparkled pink and white. Theo, his tongue poking out between his teeth as he concentrated, added a curl of some kind of citrus garnish. Voila! Ooh, said Pansy, taking hers and passing the other to Longbottom. Zabini wiggled his eyebrows, and he and Patil took theirs. They touched glasses. Flint downed his in a single swallow. Mmm, let's have another. They're meant to be savored, you great lout, said Theo. What? Are we rationing champagne? asked Flint. Why are we rationing champagne? gasped Pansy. Is there a war? Flint leaned over the bar and said in a loud whisper, Make me another, and I'll tell you what mine tasted like. Theo grew flustered. Pipsy passed out the remaining flutes of champagne. Draco's scotch-induced languor gave way to apprehension mingled with a paralyzing fatalism. Apprehension for what was to come, fatalism because he knew, deep down in his quashed heart of hearts, what was to come. Pipsy gave Draco his flute of champagne de amorte. He stepped away from the bar and concealed himself behind the convenient landmass that was flint. He stared at the gently bubbling concoction. Ridiculously, his heart was racing. He did not need to smell it to discover what was going to greet him. The fatalism grew heavy. The inevitability of it was a slow horror. He held the delicate flute to his face, feeling the fizz of champagne on the tip of his nose. He took a breath, and there it was. Coffee, brine-filled air, antiseptic. And now there were more com complex undercurrents of it, too. Shampoo, adventure dust, saturines, the smell of a candle just burnt. Granger in a glass. Fuck. Draco cleared his throat and glanced about and tried to look unconcerned. Granger was now stepping forwards to take hers from the house elf. On her face was a look of noble dread, as of a queen walking to the guillotine. After taking the flute, she held it at waist height, well away from her face, and turned to chat with Patil. Patil was distracted by a squabble between Flint and Theo. Granger visibly steeled herself. Draco watched as she lifted the glass to her face. She breathed in and looked stricken, as though some ghastly thing had just been confirmed. She hardly had time to collect herself when Pansy turned to her. Have you tried yours? Granger, tight about the jaw, gave Pansy a restricted sort of smile and took a sip. And? asked Theo. Delicious, said Granger in a strangled voice. When the group's focus had moved elsewhere, Granger stared at the flute, as though she were pondering spilling its contents onto the floor. She did not look at Draco. Longbottom held his champagne under his nose and sighed. My wife after a shower. Sabini sniffed his. I'm getting, hmm, ginger. Emotional stability, said Patil, inhaling hers with a last, and bergamot. Damp grass, said Pansy. A fire in late winter, mused Theo. Leather, said Flint. Ooh, said everyone. 
Slow gin, said Granger, but she was lying. Fresh-picked lavender, mint, and crushed basil. Orange peel, lied Draco. Masala chai, nougat. Theo topped them off with a little more champagne, and the crowd dispersed. The ladies lingered at the bar. Pipsy snapped her fingers and stared at the fire in the salon's fireplace, which the men gathered around. They pulled a few chairs in close for some cozy philosophizing. Draco threw himself upon a chair in an attitude suggestive of careless elegance and manly athleticism, in case Granger looked his way. They talked of travel. Draco sipped his drink. Draco was doing it right, said Theo with an approving look. Doing what right? asked Draco. Savoring. It was true, he was. The champagne was bliss in a glass. The amatentia was so lightly dosed that it felt like memories on his tongue, rather than tastes. It lured feelings out from behind the quashing and made him want to revel in them. There was a leisurely sort of misery accompanying the bliss. It made him aware that he wanted things. Not just obvious Granger things, but deeper things. The conversation moved back to travel plans, and Draco was left to savor. He looked at Longbottom and found himself, for the first time in his life, envious of the man. He wanted what this plonker had. He wanted to be wanted, not for his name or for his money or his looks, but for being a decent, occasionally stupid man. He wanted someone to twirl his hair and do his bow ties. He wanted someone to grasp his hand and pull him onto dance floors and into bathrooms for quickies and along the path of life. It was a yearning, as delicious as it was painful. He occluded before he could fall too far into besotted, self-pitying despair. He didn't need the Carthusians and their devious torments, armed with a glass of Amartentia champagne. He could amply torture himself. Talk now turned to Theo's plans for a vineyard. Draco hasn't given us his usual grain of salt, said Zabini. I think it's going to be an utter failure. Draco is preoccupied tonight, said Flint. I'm savoring, said Draco. Let him savor, said Theo, flinging a protective arm across Draco's chest. Ideal locations for Theo's vineyard were batted about. Some favored France, some Italy, some argued for exotic locales like distant California. Draco released his barrier of occlusion as his emotional turbulence subsided. The three witches wandered towards the fire in a tidily manner, arms hooked into one another. Patil was passing a finger through Granger's curls. May I form a parasocial relationship with your hair? It got so long. Only if I can with yours, said Granger, looping Patil's plate around her palm. I positively love it. Ladies, join us, said Zabini. Shh, said Flint, leaning forward with interest. Don't interrupt. I want to see where this goes. But it was too late. Granger and Fithill disentangled themselves from one another, and where it was going would remain a tragic mystery. Pansy observed the gathering wizards and crossed arms and cocked hip. Join you? You've pulled up precisely enough chairs for your five shapely arses. I'll conjure, began Longbottom. No, said Theo. He gestured toward the laps of the various gentlemen around the fire. There's loads of space. Pansy, smirking, strode towards Longbottom with an exaggerated sway in her hips and collapsed onto him with an ease that spoke of years of familiarity. The small, joyous barb prickled at Draco's heart. Patel slipped onto Zabini's knee. And Granger? Granger was going for her wand and a moment away from conjuring a chair when Theo called her courage into question by saying... You mustn't be afraid of Draco, you know. He is quite domesticated. I'm sure he won't bite. The look that Granger leveled at Theo was combative in nature. Afraid? Of him? And then, drunk and bursting with bravado, she strode towards Draco, dropped herself onto his lap, and made him hold her champagne flute while she arranged her skirts. 
Granger was in his lap. Granger was in his lap. Draco wanted to die. Also, he resolved to kill Theo for the third time that evening. He would ask Sabini for Nundu venom when he acquired it. Granger had seated herself across his legs, her bum on his thighs, her feet crossed at the ankles off to the side. This offered Draco an excellent view of her profile, including the side of her breast, clad in clingy black fabric, precisely at eye level. Draco averted his eyes to find something safer to look at. His gaze landed lower, where the slit of her dress exposed her thigh, right there, near his crotch. Unsafe, he looked at Longbottom's shoes instead. Granger was warm, hot even. Do you bite? asked Granger. On request, said Draco with a slow smile. Nothing wrong with a bit of recreational flirting. His friends would think it odd if he didn't, really. It threw her. Draco filed this away as a new method of bothering Granger, though its exploration seemed fraught with danger for the botherer as well as the botheree. Granger plucked her drink out of Draco's hand. Theo, satisfied with the arrangements, turned away to continue to be a nuisance elsewhere. Does Theo know about your anesthesia-induced flights of fancy, or was this a coincidence? asked Granger. Sheer coincidence. I can assure you I did not share those thoughts with the class. Dreams really do come true. In the most unexpected ways, said Draco, before retreating to safer territory. Was Henrietta a terrible bully? Yes, very insistent on the black. She would be the meddlesome little scamp. Draco could smell Granger's shampoo, but he didn't know if it was coming from her or the flutes of Amortentia champagne fizzled in their hands. This was fine. He was not going to get hard just because a woman was on his knee. He was an adult. Theo was now insulting Zabini's taste in wine. Matilde joined in with glee. Apparently this had been a source of previous argument, and she had an arsenal of witticisms at the ready. Granger was studying Theo with a perilous sort of glint in her eye. Turn him into a cockroach, suggested Draco. I may. What's this about cocks? asked Flint. Cockroaches, said Draco. Who is talking about cocks? asked Pansy. Draco, said Flint. Typical, said Pansy. Granger is going to turn Theo into a cockroach, said Draco. You can do that? asked Zabini. Obviously, said Granger. Theo raised his glass with a wary look at Granger. Cheers. Just what I wanted. A new phobia. Very Kafka-esque, said Patel. You'll have to write a book about your experience. These Philistines won't grasp that reference, sniffed Theo. Excuse me, I've got to go refill my drink and incidentally flee Hermione's vicinity. She can do it at range, called Draco to Theo's retreating back. He felt the shake of Granger's withheld laugh as Theo's strides accelerated away. The talk turned back to wine. Zabini mounted a fairly sound defense of Vermentino. Granger was on his lap. Draco tried not to think about it. He gave an opinion on tannins. He felt warm under the collar. He loosened his bow tie. From across the room, Theo shouted, Right! The practice! Which wasn't at all what Draco had been going for. But all right. Granger started. Oh, I think I've already forgotten everything. She drew closer to Draco with a tipsy sort of focus. She had done a smoky thing around her eyes that made them even more folly-inny. Draco, therefore, did not look at her. He admired the ceiling. He felt a slight tug here and there at his neck as Granger mucked about with his bow tie. Wait, muttered Granger. That's, no, wrong, way, ugh. Granger's fingers were careful around his scar as she undid whatever she had just done. Draco indulged in a brief daydream wherein she continued to undo things, starting with the rest of his buttons, and then him. His cock began to take an interest in the proceedings and twitched at him. Brilliant. Granger stared at the bow tie tangle and sighed. 
bugger. I've got no idea where I am. Draco didn't either, so that was fine. Granger hiccuped, shuffled deeper into his lap, and started over. He waited for his brain to suggest a droll remark, but all it proposed was, Glurk. Draco was much obliged. If she shuffled closer and did much more wiggling, he would soon be providing Granger with the hard evidence she so craved. Distantly, he registered words of encouragement from Longbottom to Granger. Done, said Granger. Longbottom inspected it and said it was a proper bow tie this time. Granger conjured a mirror for Draco to give his judgment. All he really took in was his own reflection, dark-eyed, with a flush pink across the top of his cheekbones. Also, he had a hair out of place. Eight out of ten, said Draco. Hold that there for me, darling. I've got to fix this. Granger was not a darling. She gave him a look that was cutting. He fixed his hair just in time. She transformed the mirror into a concave monstrosity that made him look like the Scroot. Zabini sauntered off to find Theo, followed by Patil. I suppose I've improved, at least, said Granger, but it was clear that it was rankled in her swatty soul that she had not achieved top marks. It's rather fun to teach you something for a change. There's loads I'd like you to teach me. Oh? That magic detection spell, said Granger in a low voice, the one you used at my cottage. Draco said in an equally low voice, Only if you teach me that runic command, the one you used on the arrows. Granger thought about it, a finger on her lip. Then she came in closer, smelling delicious, and whispered, Fine, but you've got to teach me the geodesic warding spell in exchange. There was nothing titillating about geodesic warding spell, and yet Draco found himself clenching his jaw to suppress a shiver as the words ran across his ear and went straight to his groin. He was half hard. Draco had one final request, so private that he gestured Granger to even closer. One of her curls brushed across his mouth as she leaned in. Then you've got to teach me the computer, said Draco. Granger gasped. You extortionist! I know. You'll have to produce a better bargaining chip. The computer's secrets are too powerful. Oh? I'll have to think about something else to offer. Granger ran a hand down her arm. She had goosebumps which was wickedly satisfying, but also potentially a problem. These pedagogical matters having been negotiated and settled, each took a sip of their champagne. Draco glanced about and was pleased to discover that no one was paying any attention to them. Flint was explaining to Longbottom that he was banned from the Fortescues. Draco hadn't caught the rest of the tale, which might ordinarily have interested him, but these were not ordinary times. Pansy was dozing on Longbottom's shoulder. Flint muttered that he was desperate for a slash and rose. Longbottom carried Pansy to one of the sofas. Granger swirled the remainder of her champagne and watched the pink liquid fizz. Orange peel, she said, looking pensive. What about it? asked Draco. What happened to your toffee and coffee? What happened to your expensive cologne? You were lying. So were you. Why? Why were you? I suppose it's quite private. Yes. Granger swaying a little in Draco's lap, downed the rest of her champagne. She swallowed. A drop lingered on her lip, which she wiped away with the tip of her finger. Glurk. Draco looked away until it was safe, and then back again. Now her face was close to his. Her gaze was soft, tipsy, dreamy. I hate that this tastes so good, said Granger. She looked devastated by it. Sexily devastated. She pressed her fingertip between her lips. Draco finished his own champagne to distract himself. Granger's gaze flitted to his mouth and back up again. I positively loathe mine. If that is any comfort, said Draco. Strangely it is. 
Draco shifted under the pre pretense of getting more comfortable, or something. Granger slid in closer as a result. He could feel the swell of her breast against his chest. The mass of her hair was trapped between them and tickled his neck. And there was the Granger gravitational force, the falling towards the drawing in. Her mouth was two inches from his. Her eyes were warm. He could slip a hand behind her neck and, gods, from the way she was leaning, he wouldn't have to pull her in. She would just fall into him. And it would be... It would be... Granger blinked and breathed out and drew back. It would be a bad idea, yes. I have had too much to drink, and I am not thinking clearly, said Granger, and it sounded like she was declaring it to herself, rather than to Draco. I have never thought less clearly in my life, said Draco. Granger sat up straighter. The warmth in her eyes was extinguished. She was occluding. Draco followed suit. It was probably the right thing to do, rather than a full-on snog in the middle of Theo's party, anyway. They looked about to find that they were alone. All of the chairs were empty. Granger had been sitting on his lap under the weakest of pretenses, but now there was absolutely no reason for it. There were voices from the flue hearth just outside the salon. People were getting ready to leave. With a sudden panicky vigor, Granger sprung off Draco's lap. She strode to the bar, where she asked Pipsy for an ice water, which was promptly downed. Then she dropped the glass onto the bar and stiff-backed, stared at nothing. Pipsy asked if everything was all right, miss. Granger, in a tight voice, said that yes, everything was fine. Draco waited for long enough to ensure the disposition of any hard evidence, and then walked to the group at the flue. The occlusion helped with the general air of insouciance he wished to convey as he joined in with the goodbyes. Granger joined them, looking relatively composed, and also gave her thanks and farewells. Longbottom, carrying Pansy, disapparated into the flue, followed by Zabini and Patil, then Flint. Draco lured Theo back to the salon under some pretext so that Granger could flew to the manor without being heard. "'You were less of a miserable bastard than usual tonight,' said Theo. "'You're a meddlesome little twat,' said Draco. "'Glad you had a good time. I hated every moment.' Theo grinned. "'Fuck off home, Draco.' Draco gave him a wave and strode to the flue. He hoped that Granger hadn't run off straight to bed during his chat with Theo. They had unfinished business. He was going to get his bloody dance." Draco stepped out of the flue to find Henriette assisting Granger with a delicate dusting off of her gown. Henriette cleaned Draco off, too, then bid them both goodnight, an annoying sort of twinkle in her eye. Right, said Draco, straightening his bow tie. Good that you're still here. Granger looked guarded. Why? Draco took her arm and strode out of the flue parlor. Where are we? gasped Granger. The ballroom. But what? I want a proper dance. But we? No, that was rubbish. Granger mounted no further objections, but allowed her drunken self to be pulled along, looking politely confused. Draco pushed open the ballroom's enormous double doors. The elves kept every room in the manor ready for use at a moment's notice, and the regal ballroom was no exception. In the penumbra, the white marble floor shone and the multitude of mirrors that covered the walls sparkled. At the south end, the floor-to-ceiling windows stretched upwards until they disappeared into shadow. Draco waved his wand at the vaulted ceilings. Eight enormous crystal chandeliers glowed into life, lowered, and began a slow rotation across the ceiling. Their lights reflected brilliantly off the glossy marble and the mirrors. Another wand wave and the sound of an orchestra resonated through the ballroom. Granger gasped in that delighted, breathy, lips-parted-just-so way of hers that gave Draco so much pleasure. He felt a grin make its way onto his face. It is quite splendid, isn't it? It is! 
Draco took one of Granger's hands in his, put the other on her waist, and began to lead her through a waltz before she could get Grangery and pose too many questions, such as whether he had gone mad. They danced a few cautious steps. He glanced at her to see whether she was planning on bolting from the lunatic, but she was following his lead, looking wary but curious. She had looked at him this way once before, when he had charmed an entire cohort of muggle doctors at the Oxford pub. It was a pleasant surprise, and the, who the bloody hell are you, all in one. As it had been in Provence, her waist was warm under his palm. Her hand was gentle in his. She was light as they moved, and this time there was no treading on one another's feet. Draco watched their dance in the mirrors, how her figure nestled so snugly next to his, how her gown whisked in time with their movements, brushing at his legs when they turned. He indulged unrepentantly in his kaleidoscope of angles through which to delight her. If he looked ahead, it was the dip between her bare shoulder blades in the mirror there. To the left, it was the curve of her backside. If he looked down, it was the dark eyelashes, flushed cheeks, and pink lips. She came in closer as they turned and pressed against him, and it felt gorgeous. He didn't let her pull away again. His hand slipped to her lower back and kept her there. She looked up at him in dark wonder, then looked down, her lip between her teeth. The music swelled. Around them the ballroom spun, the stars in the windows glowed. The chandeliers danced their own soft twinkle dance and scattered splendor through the room. It was a moment of enchantment, of harmony, of gleaming reverie. Their eyes were filled with lights and their ears were a crescendo of violins and their hearts with each other. This, this is what he had wanted. He raised his arm and she spun away from him and they were joined only at the fingertips and then she was twirled back into him so close that he felt her take her next breath. The light was in his veins again. The Mavon sun, incandescent, glorious, swelling about his heart and squeezing the very air out of him. Again she spun away, and this time came in with her back to him, pressed against his chest, her bum against his groin. Their eyes locked in one of the mirrors, and it was too intense to sustain, and they looked away again. Now it was his turn to partake in some ill-advised lifting, which he did, with his hands around her waist sweeping her up into the air. He spun her while she was aloft, taking pleasure in her gasp, in her grip on his shoulders. She flew above him with a squeal of surprised laughter. When he brought her down, she clung to him, laughing in the brightness of real joy in her eyes. He felt a matching joy whose like he had never felt before. The lightness in him was sublime. Her arms were around his neck. She was so close to him that he wanted to explode. The feeling was rare, precious, heart-rending. She was radiant. She took his breath away. She was everything he wanted. The lights dimmed. The music quieted. They stopped moving and stood in this lover's embrace, breathing, dark-eyed, high on one another, waiting. Granger, I... She looked up. He had nothing more. He was falling. He didn't need the ring to tell him that her heart was racing. He could feel the pulse of it against his chest. His thudded a matching beat, too fast. So fast it hurt. He was drunk on endorphins and too much good booze and too little good sense. Her lips were parted. She was looking at him like she could kiss him. It was impossible. It couldn't happen. Now her fingers were on his jaw. He bent towards her. The pull was too sweet. Her kiss was a soft question. His answer was to squeeze her up and into him. She gasped against his lips and he kissed her back. Finally. Fucking finally. Their mouths met with the press of yawning. Too much champagne. Of, I hate that this tastes so good. Only now it wasn't Amartentia that he tasted. It wasn't those fragrant, fabricated whiffs. It was her. It was real. And the champagne was a poor imitation. 
now that he had the real thing against him, breathing staccato breaths against his mouth, winding fingers into his shirt. The Amortentia didn't speak of the softness of her lips, of quivering, of fingers hooked into his collar, of a witch delicious, flush-cheeked, unsteady, pressing her smiling mouth into his. She shook slightly, as did he, with the euphoric mess of adrenaline and nerves and restraint. She pulled away and pressed her face into his neck. The intimacy of it sent his heart into a fresh frenzy. His arms wrapped around her. She was fine-boned and delicate and trembling deliciously. I'm still not thinking clearly, she said, her voice low and dusky, her words brushing across the scar. Shall we... shall we say it's the drink? asked Draco in a half-whisper. Yes, breathed Granger with relief. Let's. We had... a lot. And that's certainly to blame for any... any unwise behaviors. There was the golden sound of her laughter. Obviously. They looked at each other. He thought he could die happy if her lips wet his again. And then they did. Chapter 28. The Viking. Shameful Conduct of. Healing. Pleasures of. The dance. The lights. The music. The woman in his arms. It was a moment of scintillating joy that would become one of Draco's fondest memories and produce astoundingly powerful Patronuses for years to come. They broke apart with the breathy, clingy regret. Granger pulled away first, then Draco kissed her again. He felt the imminent knell of reality and wanted just one more. Then he tried to pull back, but she rose to the tips of her toes and pressed her mouth to the edge of his jaw. His hand slipped to the nape of her neck, rose petals brushed against his knuckles. She sighed against his cheek. The dream of the moment began to fade. Draco ran his fingers down her side to memorize the feel of her and kiss her one last time to seal away the memory of her sweet mouth. They stared at each other, wet-lipped, bewildered, their drunken faculties finally catching up to what they had done. Reality was cold and unyielding, and it hit hard. Draco's brain, which had been, by all accounts, absent all evening, returned. It asked with violence what the fuck he thought he was doing. An oar did not snog his principal. Granger looked equally confounded. She took a step back. There was self-reproach, regret, and dread in the movement. They regarded each other with a mounting alarm and a desperation to assert that it had been nothing at all. Granger, stricken, found her tongue first. We shouldn't have done that. No, we shouldn't have, said Draco, hating how breathless he sounded. Granger looked at the floor, at the mirrors, at anywhere but him. I know that we're not, um, I know that, obviously, you know, yes, obviously. And also, we aren't, yes. We have a working relationship said Granger, and there are strict rules about this sort of thing, for very good reasons. There are, yes, rules, and a code of conduct that is unequivocal on, on things of this nature. Right, of course. It was a lapse in judgment, said Draco. Yes, we were both, both under the influence. It won't happen again. I wouldn't want to contravene anything and jeopardize this. You as my oar and everything. Right. Right, repeated Granger. Draco attempted to find his insouciance. It was the drinks. Just the drinks. Obviously, yes. Nothing more. Nothing more, repeated Draco. Good, said Granger. Shall we go to bed? asked Draco. Yes. I mean separately, of course. Go to beds, plural. I mean, we can leave together, but go to separate beds. Right, said Granger, nodding vigorously in the face of this critical clarification. Yes, because we would never go to the same bed. Obviously. Of course not. 
that would be mad. Yes, we aren't mad. No, we are perfectly sane. Having established their vexing soundness of mind, they turned to the door. The things that had drawn them together were still at it. They brushed elbows. They leapt away from each other as they burnt, with more apologizing. Leaving the ballroom was an awkward jig of who would open the door and who would go first, without touching the other. Draco walked Granger to the grand staircase, but did not follow her up. "'Aren't you?' asked Granger. "'No,' said Draco. "'Upon reflection, I have decided to throw myself into the lake.' Granger looked as though she were truly an excellent next step. "'I am going to scream into my pillow.' "'Good. Brilliant.' "'Um, do enjoy. Thank you.' Granger hurried up the stairs without looking behind her. Draco waited until he heard her door close. Then he said, quietly, but with all of the turbulence in his soul, "'Fuck!' The full moon was imminent. The Ministry of Magic, attempting to balance public safety with public hysteria, published an adversary asking the wizarding community to stay indoors during the three nights of the Hunter's Moon, due to suspected werewolf activity. Potter, the WTF, and every available ore spent the Hunter's Moon on the hunt themselves. They caught 30 werewolves who had positioned themselves to transform where they could infect the most people. Seven werewolves were not caught on in time. Fifteen people were infected. Five succumbed to their injuries. Granger's work took on a new urgency. Draco's legitimacy had never been so in demand. But Fenrir Greyback was careful. There was nothing of use in the minds of the captives. The traps at the safe house in Granger's cottage yielded four captures. One witch, three wizards, all working under Greyback's orders, and all infuriatingly unaware of his whereabouts. Security at King's Hall was tightened. Bemused scholars and students found themselves made to present credentials at the entrance, now guarded by DMLE operatives. Access to the third floor, which housed Granger's laboratory, was blocked off. The other fellows were relocated elsewhere. Granger briefed her laboratory staff on the threat and gave them the option to discontinue their work, with pay, until the situation was resolved. None took it. Days passed in a tense, anxious blur. When he wasn't with Granger, Draco's attention was obsessively on the ring waiting to feel the panicked rise of her heart or the shrill call of her distress beacon. So, of course, at the next incident, he felt neither. It was Gogan's burly ram, Patronus, who alerted him that there was a problem. Draco had been interrogating a werewolf caught at Granger's cottage when the silvery ram bounded into the holding cell. King's Hall, it grunted in Gogan's voice. Quickly! Draco apparated to Cambridge to find panicky wizards and muggles running about all along Trinity's quad. He fought his way to the entrance of King's Hall, where Gogan lay, sliced open from the sternum downwards, bleeding out. Beside him were the limp figures of the DMLE operatives who had been on guard, and the bodies of five unknown wizards. Further on, a scattered pile of books. No sign of Granger. Feeling a horrid, inverted sense of deja vu, Draco sent three Borzois streaking to the Auror's office and the Mediwitch service. He disillusioned himself and apparated to the ring. Why the fuck hadn't she activated the distress beacon? What had they done to her? He cracked into existence in near darkness, in the living room of a boarded-up house. The silhouettes of a half-dozen men jumped in surprise as the crack of his apparition gave his arrival away. He couldn't see Granger and therefore dared not plow through them with something explosive. He managed to petrify three of them as he gathered his bearings, deflected two curses. Then he was in the crossfire of too many spells to deflect, and was hit by a finite incantatum, something concussive at his knee, and a stupefy. The stunner was a glancing blow, striking him in the shoulder. His wand fell out of his nerveless hand. Draco, seeing his wand clatter away to his opponent's feet, feigned a collapse, as though the stunner had hit true. 
there were four men left. From where he now lay on the floor, Draco could see Granger, slumped against the cracked wall. She, too, looked stunned. No obvious bleeding. It was a minor relief. Draco's wand was picked up by the largest figure among the men, who now held three. Draco's, Granger's, and his own. Is that a bloody oar? How the fuck is this our soul here? asked one of the men. He shone a lumos on the insignia of Draco's cloak. This one must have a tracker on her, said another in a nastily whinge, kicking at Granger. He cast a basic revelation spell, too rudimentary to reveal the ring. Let's strip her. He pulled Granger off the floor with unnecessary violence, snapping her lolling head backwards. He began to tear at the front of her jumper and stuffed one hand under it to undo her jeans. He was going to die today. I will search her, said the biggest figure. That slightly accented rumble, the red-blonde glint of the beard. It was Larson. You always do the fun bits, said the nasally one, his groping hand at Granger's fly. I want to have a go. Larson grabbed the man by the back of the neck. More. I said I will do it. Get your fucking hands off me, said Moore, dropping Granger to squirm against Larson's grip. They had a scuffle. Draco watched and waited for a moment when one of the men would stumble too close to him and he could steal a wand. One of the other kidnappers attempted peacekeeping, shoving his way between the two. Oi, oi, could you two stop fucking it about? Who knows how many other auras are on their way? Aye, said the lanky fourth man. Let's get what we need from her and go. Moore took advantage of the distraction to land a blow to Larson's face. Let me go, you fucking... Larson did not react well to the hit. He backhanded Moore again to the wall. Moore pushed himself off it and launched himself at Larson with a rageful yell. The other two tried to intervene, wands up, threatening to stun both combatants. Draco waited for his opening. He would only have one. They were closer to Granger than to him now and too far for him to seize one of the wands from Larson's fist. The failed stunner was wearing off of Draco's arm. He slid his hand to his thigh holster, where his favorite knife was strapped. A smattering of an elevated heart rate came through the ring, and then a flutter of fear. Granger was waking up. As her abductors grappled with each other, one of her hands shifted towards her pocket. She kept her head hanging as though she was still unconscious. Now, amongst the stomping boots of an arguing man, Draco could see something shining in her palm. It was a stack of her anti-magic pucks. Oh. Oh. Granger was about to even the playing field. Draco waited. With snaps of her wrist, Granger sent pucks skidding into the corners of the room, under rotted furniture, and into dark nooks. One of the men noticed the movement. What the fuck did she just do? What do you mean? I just saw her, I don't know, twitch. I think she threw something. They crowded around Granger. Larson snatched her by the chin and pressed his wand to her temple. Legilimens! But it was too late. Draco had felt the change the moment the perimeter was complete. There was a kind of extinguishing, deep within him, a sudden lack. There would be no legilimency in this room. The fuck is happening? asked Moore. The lanky one pressed his hand against his chest, as though the breath had been stolen from him. What the? Draco did not give them time to work it out. He sprang to his feet, took three strides toward the group, and plunged his knife into the side of the first available neck. Then, being happily unencumbered by a sense of honor, he stabbed the next man in the back. The lanky one and the peacekeeper were down. Larson and Moore whipped around and backed against the wall, wands up. Expulsus Viserabus, spat Larson, slicing his wand towards Draco. Confrigo, shouted Moore, jabbing his toward him. Crucio! Nothing happened. Looking bewildered, Larson switched to Draco's wand. Decapio! Then to Granger's. Stupefy! To no effect. What the fuck is wrong? said Moore, pointing his useless wand at Draco. Draco plucked the wand from Moore's hand as he conveniently was offering it to him. 
He plunged it into Moore's eye to the hilt. There was some spurting of vitreous gel. Moore pitched forwards with a strangled scream. Draco stepped onto the back of his head and did not remove his weight until he felt the tip of the wand pierce the man's skull and press against the bottom of his boot. That was for Granger. He stepped over him and turned to Larson. He and the Viking sized each other up. The biggest man that Draco had sparred with was Gogan. This man made Gogan look like a prepubescent boy. Draco was wise enough to know that he was physically outmatched. In any other situation, he would have retreated. The right move here was to flee, if only for long enough to call in reinforcements. The logical move. The obvious move. But he would not be fleeing. He would leave Granger alone with this man over his literal dead body. That was the problem with some things between Aurors and their principles. Draco had a knife. Larson had all of the advantages of superior height and weight. This was going to be interesting. Larson blinked at Draco in the penumbra. The pilot? Right. Dreesen's memories. Do not fight me, said Larson, raising his hands. I will let you go. I only need her. She's not worth what I am going to do to you. She is definitely worth what I am going to do to you. Larson dropped the useless wands and rushed in. They began a dangerous dance, with Draco doing his best to avoid being grappled, while Larson wanted nothing more than to bring him into a close quarters and beat him with the superior mass. Draco positioned himself between Larson and Granger, who was huddled into a corner, her heart racing through the ring. Larson came in too close. Draco sliced a pretty line across his face. A punch intended for Draco's throat hit him in the chest. He felt something crack. He lashed out with his knife. Larson ducked away at the last moment and lost an ear instead of his life. They separated. Draco found it difficult to catch his breath. Something was not sitting correctly in his ribcage. Larson touched at the side of his head and looked at his bloody hand in wonder. The flap of flesh that had been his ear was on the floor. They stared at each other. Draco sorely missed his legitimacy. Larson snarled and launched himself at Draco again. Draco landed a kick at his solar plexus that should have put him on his knees. It did not. It slowed him for a moment, then he switched tactics, focusing on seizing the knife from Draco's hand. Draco saw an opening for a clean hook and seized it. His fist smashed into the man's eye. He felt the precise outline of Larson's eye socket against his knuckles. He felt a kind of grinding. That punch would have thrown any other man on his ass, but not the Viking. He shook it off and lunged again for the knife. Draco welcomed his groping hand with the point of the knife and pushed it through his palm. Larson snatched his hand away and swung it with an uppercut with the other, only partially dodged by Draco. It clipped Draco on the jaw. He saw stars. If Larson landed a single solid punch, this fight was over. The Viking was a beast. They broke apart. Larson held his punctured palm to the side. Draco shook his head to knock his brain back into place. Black spots swam in his vision. Hand-to-hand -hand combat was exhausting. After these long 60 seconds of fighting, Larson should have been like Draco, panting, shaking with exertion. He was hardly winded. They came together again. Draco crunched a fist into Larson's mouth. The Viking was thrown off course and spun away. Now he was angry. He spat out teeth. He lunged outrageously quick for such a large man and managed to kick the knife out of Draco's hand. They both dove for it. Draco realized, as Larson wrestled him into the ground, that the man hadn't wanted the knife. He had wanted Draco within reach of his monstrous bulk. Draco was pinned. Larson was on him, a hand at his neck pressing every pound of his hideous weight into it. Draco's vision began to swim. Larson raised his fist. Draco was dead. In a kind of slow motion, he saw a small hand appear beside Larson's thigh. In the small hand glinted a scalpel. Larson's fist began its downward trajectory. Time slowed to a crawl. 
With loving precision, the scalpel was pressed deep into the upper part of Larson's thigh and dragged down the length of his femoral artery. The descending fist paused. Larson's trousers split along the cut. There was a gorgeous gush of blood. Time accelerated again. Larson turned with a snarl and knocked Granger to the floor. She tumbled away. The damage was done. Larson staggered to his feet. A mistake. The long wound disgorged what looked like a pint of blood. Draco's vision cleared. Granger was on her knees, two of the wands clutched to her chest. She was reaching for the third. Larson kicked her away and snatched up the remaining wand. Then he took her by the arm and heaved her up. Draco's heart stopped. She looked so fragile, so breakable, as she dangled before finding her feet. The Viking staggered to the door, bleeding profusely, dragging Granger along, evidently planning on making an escape. Draco disagreed with Larson's plan, which he indicated by throwing himself towards him, knife in hand, and severing his stupidly thick Achilles tendons, first his left, then his right. Granger pulled her arm from Larson's grip as the man fell to his knees. The Viking looked over his shoulder, at the knife and the scalpel, and at the long smear of his own blood, red-black on the grimy floor. He half-crawled, half-fell out of the door. He did not know it, but it put him just outside of Granger's perimeter. Draco, still on his hands and knees, threw the knife. Clutching at his wand with his bloodied hand, Larson opened his mouth to disapparate. The knife hit him in the shoulder. He grunted, raised the wand again weakly, and then his jaw went slack. He finally fell unconscious in a pool of his blood. Draco and Granger both scrambled to their feet and joined him outside the perimeter. Draco pulled Larson's wand out of his hand. Granger passed him his own. He mustn't die, cried Granger, kneeling next to Larson. Healing spells aglow at the tip of her wand. I need to know why. Draco flung cuffs on the man and tightened them without mercy. They sent a small menagerie of Patronuses out, summoning Mediwitches, Potter and Weasley, whoever was at Orr HQ, and Tonks. While Granger stabilized the man, Draco snatched him by the beard and snapped his head back, swiped his wand at him to open his eyes, and spat, with Gillimans. In his half-dead state, the Viking's occulency softened. Draco gasped out what findings to Granger as he went. Right. What does this arsehole want from you? Two things. First, he wanted to scour your brain for information on anyone else who might be working on magical immunotherapy, or even muggles who might be able to help magical researchers. And secondly... Draco encountered a denser, occlusive barrier. He struggled against it, then decided to take a shortcut by squeezing at Larson's throat until it faded away. Secondly, when he heard that you were developing a treatment for lycanthropy, he... First, he didn't believe it. It was impossible. And then he wanted to understand how you'd isolated the virus to target it in the first place. He hasn't been able to isolate it himself. How did he hear about it? asked Granger. And why is he trying to isolate it? Give us a minute, said Draco, working through disjointed threads of memories to find answers. He wanted to gain enough of your trust to meet you somewhere alone to read you and understand how you'd done it. You were too careful, too guarded, so he offered to work with you so he could get in behind the scenes. He felt me read him in the cafe, didn't want a confrontation, decided to prune off the other researchers before coming back to you, discovered that your protection measures had been ramped up, has been watching King's Hall for weeks, gathered today's group to kidnap you, was going to use legitimacy to learn how you'd isolated the virus or torture it out of you, and then... Fucking arsehole. Then kill you. But why? I'm getting there. Draco plunged deeper into Larson's mind, where involuntary occlusion lingered the thickest, in spite of the man's near unconsciousness. He wants to kill anyone working in this field because he doesn't want a cure for lycanthropy. He shattered another barrier in the deepest part of Larson's brain, where all of his most precious secrets were kept. 
bloody hell, he's, he's a fucking werewolf. Fuck, he's been working with Greyback. Greyback told him about you. What? He needs to understand how you targeted the virus because they are trying to develop some kind of countermeasure to you. Larson's lab is trying to produce a strain of lycanthropy that can be used to infect others at any time, not only at the full moon. That's why he needed to understand how you'd done it. They're, they're trying to weaponize it. Draco pulled out of Larson's mind. He and Granger stared at one another. The cracks of apparition resonated around them. I don't think so, came the voice of Tonks. One of the petrified men, still half-paralyzed, was dragging himself out of the house, one hand clutching his wand. Tonks' combat boots crushed his fist into the floor. Get her out of here, said Tonks. Granger insisted upon collecting her pucks. Then, arm and bloody arm, they apparated to the manor. At the manor, Draco and Granger wiped the blood from their faces and held a summit meeting with Tonks, Shacklebolt, Potter, and Weasley. There was much hugging of Granger and clapping of Draco's shoulders. He dodged the hugs. After the expected expostulating and fussing, the six of them settled in around a pot of opamum for briefing on the incident. Larson and Greyback's plans were a shock to all. There was Greyback's usual vindictive form of madness. Then there was this. A concerted effort to spread a cruel disease on a massive scale and kill any of the researchers remotely able to work out a cure. It was well beyond the scope of what any of them had thought him capable of. Buy me time until December, said Granger pale-faced. Draco learned that Granger had been stunned immediately upon exiting King's Hall, which explained why he hadn't had the slightest hint from the ring on the her predicament. Gogan and the DMLE operatives had taken five men down before they were overwhelmed by their opponent's numbers. Gogan was at St. Mungo's, recovering from the same nasty evisceration curse that Larson had attempted on Draco. In attacking Granger as she left King's Hall, her kidnappers had made use of her only real vulnerability, the sole moment when she wasn't surrounded by wards, stepping out of the hall to disapparate. Shacklebolt said that he would have a ward with magical transport to have a flu hearth installed to Granger's laboratory so that she would never have to leave King's Hall's protective walls again. Greyback was playing an entirely new game now. Under the weight of Shacklebolt and Tonks, wild-eyed stares, Granger agreed with obvious pain to drop her shifts at St. Mungo's A&E. If Larson had been bold enough for a daytime kidnapping at Trinity, there was now a real possibility that Greyback would be bold enough to stage something at A&E. Tonks said she would advise the Danish Aurora Office of Larson's attack, laboratory, and repugnant plans— she, Potter, and Weasley left to pump Larson full of Veritaserum and extract whatever information he might have on Greyback's most recent location. Draco rose to join them, but Tonks categorically forbade it, snapped at him to sit down, and told him not to be a martyr. He'd bloody well done enough for one day. If you're going anywhere, it'll be to St. Mungo's, she said, eyeing Draco's various injuries. I'll take care of him, said Granger. The summit meeting dissolved. Draco and Granger showered and reconvened in one of the smaller salons both a bit worse for the wear. Draco was limping. That colossal fucker was so heavy. I think I've ruptured a bollock. Henriette and Toopy hovered anxiously, offering tea, more opamum, and chocolate, until they were gently shooed out. Granger and Draco took stock of their injuries, mostly contusions for Granger, where she'd been thrown about and grabbed at and kicked, wrists, arm, and jaw. The sight of the marks made Draco vacillate at the edge of sudden descent into rage. Something of it might have shown on his face, Granger gave him a kind of disconcerted look while healed herself in a few quick passes of her wand. The contusions were gone. The rage remained. Draco bound it up tightly and tucked it away. Now he found himself surrounded by the green glow of diagnostic spells as Granger began to examine him. He looked about at the pictographs teeming with cryptic meanings. 
You're a useful witch to have around, said Draco. You're a decent sort of wizard yourself, said Granger. Thank you. For today. Again. Absolutely brilliant move, pulling those pucks of yours out. Exceptionally glad you had a knife. Was going to throw you the scalpel. Granger fell quiet for a bit as she studied the diagnostics. Then she said, I'm not very fond of being a damsel in distress. You aren't very good at it either. I've never seen one open ephemeral artery with such sublime exactitude. He was beautifully positioned for it. There was a silence. Her hands were steady as she flicked her way through a few more diagnostic spells. You're feeling all right? asked Draco. About what? Slicing a man open? Yes, and everything. At the moment, I am more angry than anything else. Opamum is palliating the rest. You? Fine. Eager for revenge, plotting Larson's accidental death when I interrogate him, fantasizing about Greyback's violent murder at my hands. You know, fine. Granger gave him a sidelong look. Doesn't fantasizing about murder weaken one's moral fiber? I haven't a single moral fiber to speak of. Haven't you? No, I gave them all to the orphans. Granger paused. She turned away, laughed into her hands, then breathed and faced him again. Stop being silly. We have work to do. No, he would not stop being silly. He liked to see her laugh. It gave him a fluttery feeling. Also, that post-adrenaline randiness was awakening, and the Granger-induced fluttery feeling kept wanting to descend to his groin. Steady on, old boy. Granger happily, unaware of Draco that his fluttering crotch, dismissed a few of the schemata that made an inventory of his ailments. These consisted of a black eye, two broken ribs, a sprained knee, the bad one, of course, and a fractured jaw. She was pleased to inform Draco that he hadn't ruptured a bollock. She went to wash her hands. Then she came back and got healery, serious and focused, with a certain authority in her bearing. Right, let's get you properly fixed up. We'll begin with the ribs. Take off your shirt. Draco tried not to look too delighted at the opportunity. He was instructed to lie down on the sofa, which he did, happily. He put his hands behind his head, because it was comfortable, but also because it made his pecs pop, as a bonus for Granger. Also, he had a rippling six-pack. She was free to notice that, too. Granger was less interested in reveling over the Apollonian perfection before her than in muttering about Lars the arse between incantations. Draco felt the pressure of her wand at his side, and his cracked ribs became whole again, one after the other, with a muffled snap. Granger passed him his shirt. Her professionalism and efficiency were, frankly, abominable. Draco put his shirt back on because Granger, dangling it between her fingers, was now wiggling it at him impatiently. Next was his injured knee. Draco offered to take off his trousers. No, said Granger. He could just roll up his trouser leg. Beastly. Draco rolled up his trouser leg. She healed his knee. Next was his black eye, which took all of a moment. Draco cogitated. Perhaps he ought to have allowed himself to be beaten to a pulp, to give Granger more trouble and more reasons to strip him down. In a further foray into madness, he thought that perhaps he should have ruptured a bollock. Finally, Granger came to his fractured jaw. A glowing rendition of Draco's skull floated in the air between them. It was a very handsome and shapely, with cheekbones quite as nice as the Magdalene's. Along the mandible, a crack glowed red. Granger took in a little breath. It's bigger than I thought, said Granger. I'll be gentle, said Draco. Granger laughed, then regained control of herself and gave him a look that was deeply unimpressed. After studying the schema for several angles, she said that she wanted to be particularly careful healing this one, to make sure it was realigned properly and didn't affect his bite. Good. Finally. Be careful. Be slow. Be close. Granger cleared off one of the side tables for Draco to sit upon. 
Pretty, she commented as she moved an ornate hourglass out of the way. Do you think so? It's my great-great-uncle Snodsbury. I'm sorry? Draco flipped over the hourglass to demonstrate. He wanted to be cremated and still be of use. Uh, charming. Draco sat on the side table. Granger stood between his knees and took his face in her hands. This was good, thought Draco as he looked up at her. Very good. Granger said that she knew it was going to be horribly difficult, but she needed Draco to keep his mouth closed for an entire six minutes. This was fine by Draco. He was going to luxuriate instead. Granger enlarged the diagnostic image and got to work with wand movements, slow and precise. Both her fingers and her wand were warm on his jaw. Draco closed his eyes and sighed, as though he were only sighing and not, you know, breathing in Granger just out of the shower. Soap, squeaky clean, skin. What a pity that he couldn't lean forwards and press his face between her breasts and inhale. Draco's conscience twinkled irritatingly into existence to point out that Granger had just undergone a traumatic kidnapping and was now healing him, and all he could think of was her tits? He was beastly. He was a disgrace. Draco weighed the allurements of Granger against the burden of good behavior. He decided that he was indeed beastly, and a disgrace, and fuck good behavior. He would think about her tits all he liked. Granger shifted her weight from one foot to the other. He felt a brush of movement on the inside of his knee. A slow-moving pleasure flowed through him. She drew her wand tip along his jaw in deliberate lines, muttering an incantation that made things feel tighter throughout his mandible. Also, things were feeling tighter in his trousers. He should probably do something about that. Think about math or something. Granger cast another imaging spell. Sorry it's so slow. I'm going to great lengths to prevent any dental misalignment. Draco made a hmm of understanding in the back of his throat. He, too, was going to great lengths. An aura did not shag his principal. He was being hideously inappropriate. He needed to calm down. Hearing Granger mutter incantations near his ear was stirring. Her mouth, pressed into a concentrated mow, right there, was terribly enticing. The push of her wand angled under his jaw triggered some fantastical arousing hormone combination of threat and sexy. Her focused, serious gaze gave him a thrill right down to his balls. Everything was sexy. These were six of the sexiest minutes of Draco's life. He wanted to snatch her up and... Stop smirking, snapped Granger. Oops. If this heel's crooked, half of your teeth will only chew empty air, scolded Granger. I don't think you'd fancy a liquid diet. Draco would have suggested that he could give her a few spurts of a liquid diet, if she was amenable, but alas, he couldn't talk. Almost done, said Granger, with a far less touchedness in her voice now that he was behaving himself as far as she was concerned, anyway. She waved a final diagnostic into existence and brushed her fingertips along his cheek as she studied it, tilting his head left, then right. Perfect, she said, with evident satisfaction. Quite as good as new. You may resume talking. She gave him a gentle sort of pat along the jaw. It was the kindest touch he'd felt in years. He was completely hard. He was an absolute disgrace. Granger toddled off to wash her hands. Unlike Madame Pince, she did not make it a habit to observe his bulge, which was excellent, because right now it was rather bulgy. Draco glanced down to find out that his untucked shirt camouflaged the worst of it. He disengorged himself with a wand wave and proceeded to sit there, on the side table, feeling like the world's most reprehensible man, which normally wouldn't bother him. But Granger was so fucking pure-souled and just fuck. Granger came back to the salon with a brisk determination in her stride. Right, she said. 
since an assortment of criminals is obsessed with interrupting my work, I'd best get on with preparations for Sam Hain. Sharpish, before I'm waylaid again. Have you a moment to look at something with me? Draco followed Granger up the stairs. Yes, he looked at her bum. And into the guest suite. The suite's front room had been taken over as her cottage had been by books. Her foldy computer glowed on the table. Her cat had found a favorite perch on a high shelf from whence it watched Draco with a kind of imperious benevolence, as of a grand vizier permitting a peasant to enter the inner sanctum for an audience with the queen. Revelations was back on the plinth. Floating around it were stacks of Anglo-Norman dictionaries and reference tests, bristling with yellow squares of paper upon them which Granger had scrawled notes. Granger opened the ancient tome with her usual degree of care and flipped to one of the latter portions. Right, said Granger, frowning at the page. I've got a question. About that friend of a friend who helped you find this copy of Revelations. Lady Sarah, what about her? Do you think she would be off it with details on other rare, alleged to have disappeared forever items or artifacts? Uh, possibly, said Draco. She's exceptionally well connected. Granger turned to him. Her hands were clasped in front of her. She had that anxious look about her, the one she'd worn when first asking him to join her to steal Mary Magdalene's skull. I mean, I could do without it. I could. But if I want to do the thing properly... What is it? asked Draco. Might you inquire about any rumors surrounding the location of another rare item, meant to be lost to the ages, if it ever existed at all? What item? Granger bit her lip. Tell me, said Draco. You're going to think I've gone quite mad. Draco scoffed. We've already established your aggravating soundness of mine. Tell me. Granger took a breath. We are looking for Pandora's box. Chapter 29. Night Encounter. Granger is sensible. The small hours of the morning found Draco in his study. He sent a missive to Lady Sarah, inquiring, while feeling slightly like a lunatic, about any rumors she might have heard pertaining to Pandora's box. This task accomplished, he brought some semblance of order to his desk and floated a bottle of Macpherson's rare oak towards himself, along with a tumbler. Then he leaned upon the chimney-piece in shirt-sleeves and braces, fire-whiskey in his hand, and stared into the dancing flames. The shock of the day's events was catching up to him, now that the opamum was no longer in his system to dull it. Granger was safe. It had been close, but she was safe. He felt none of the feelings that typically followed close calls with principals. Sometimes it was cockiness for having boldly pulled someone out of an impossible situation. Sometimes, if the close call had been preventable, it was a guilty stirring to do better next time. Mostly it was simple relief. None of that tonight. Images repeated themselves in his mind, and all he felt was nausea. Her slumped form against the wall, more grabbing at her, her face squeezed by Larson's massive hand, her helpless dangle from Larson's arm when he pulled her to the door. No relief. Only this. This kind of heart sickness. Why? Draco stared at the fire and refused for a long time to put the why into words. When he did, it was with dread. It was because, God's help him, this principle was precious to him, and it went beyond Immortentia attractions. She mattered to him. He cared for her. All of the things an Aura ought not to feel. Worse, it was all of the vulnerabilities that Draco hated in one tiny package. He told himself that it wasn't love. That was one comfort. Love meant to be a nice thing. Butterflies and faffing about with poems and that sort of rot. This thing? This thing holding him by the throat? It was a horrid thing, and he ached with it. She shouldn't be precious to him. She should just be a principal. They weren't meant to be anything. They were meant to be colleagues at best. 
He had fucked up magnificently on that front. Gorgeously. A fuck-up for the ages. She should not be precious to him, and yet she was. Being with her was divine. It appalled him. He was wretched. He was obsessed. He was mortified, maddened, repelled, and addicted. He hated it. He didn't want any part of it. He hadn't asked for this. Other than in moments of Granger or Amartentia-induced weakness, he knew what he wanted. He wanted to remain unattached, unconquered, and free. His own man. It was a kind of cowardice, by the way. It was being too afraid to lose something and therefore not trying in the first place. It was pride. It was an aversion to opening up and being hurt. To giving her some part of him that she could break. Far better to remain alone and call it freedom. There was an out. He knew the protocols. He should speak to Tonks and resign from this assignment. Let this fade away or blow itself out. Perhaps there would be peace on the other side. Even as he thought it, he knew he wouldn't do it. Operationally, the timing of such a resignation would be simply appalling. But beyond that, fuck the protocols. Fuck anything that might put her further away from him. He didn't want to lose this thing. He was too selfish. He was too addicted. He wanted to continue this ongoing, endlessly careful, feroce sort of dance. Flirting that pretended not to be. Lapses that were quickly blamed on alcohol and swept under the rug. An equilibrium, he had told Tonks. It was true. A strained status quo. That was what he wanted to maintain. It was an approximation of happiness. But it wasn't quite enough, was it? Draco pushed away from the fireplace with fresh frustration. He extinguished the fire with a slash of his wand and left his study with no real purpose to direct his restless strides. The manor's stately corridors were dark. A chill October wind beat itself against the windows and rattled branches against the house. Draco spotted movement in the shadows, coming towards him. A white silhouette was at the end of the corridor. Her lumos illuminated the floor in front of her as she walked. There was a high-tailed orange blur at her ankles. Granger was letting the cat out. She was wearing one of those negligees she had mentioned in Provence. Draco froze where he stood. Part of him wished to pivot and flee and not subject himself to what was sure to be another torturous encounter. Two hours of brooding had not made his cock forget the afternoon's travails. At this rate, she could probably just brush a fingertip on his cheek and he'd be hard. Part of him very much wanted to inspect this negligee in person and proceed with this journey of education in and appreciation of muggle fashion. Look at him. He had just spent hours browbeating himself and here he was, vacillating, instead of doing the obvious right thing. He was a hopeless wretch. Granger jumped, a hand upon her breast, when she noticed him. Oh, it's you. Did I disturb you? She asked in a whisper. Sorry, Crooks needed a wee. I was just finishing up, said Draco in an equally low voice. If they woke the elves, there would be a fuss and offers of midnight snacks and other botheration. How is the pestilence of incompetence treating you? Asked Granger. Abysmally. Where do you let the cat out? Just through here, said Granger. She yawned into the back of her hand, looking half asleep as she led him to one of the salons. He drifted in her wake. Her legs were a pale flash in the darkness. Her hair was a mesh of partially unwound plait, draped over her shoulder. The silky negligee clung to her hips, her bum, her breasts. She was barefoot. It was gorgeous, tempting, everything. And Aura did not shag his principal. But bloody hell would he be admiring from behind. He watched the sway of her hips, the matching sway of the fabric, the shape of her calves. The delicacy of her ankles felt under his fingers so long ago now, and yet he still remembered the feeling, the detail of every edge and dip. He smelled antiseptic and a struck match. He should have pivoted and fled. 
Granger reached one of the terrace doors, lifted the sheer curtains aside, and slid the pane open. The cat trotted out. I'll have a cat flap put in here, said Draco, if he knows the way. Oh, that's really not necessary. I prefer not to have you roving about at night, alone. Tisk. The manor is perfectly safe, or so I've been told. You're the greatest threat I've encountered in all of my nighttime rovings. Am I? Yes. You looked fearsomely irascible just then. You caught me on a bad night. Oh, are you generally quite cheerful at half three in the morning? Relentlessly. Hmm, said Granger, sleepy amusement upon her lips. She yawned into her hands again, then opened the door to see where the cat had got to. There was a witchery in the trees, stripped of their leaves, stretching bare arms to the black sky. The wind gusted the curtains about in a ghostly dance. With it came the melancholy smell of autumn at night. Wet, heavy, and something uncanny. Sam Hain was near. The veil between worlds was growing thin. Granger shuddered and slid the door. Draco did not look down. He was 100% certain that there would be nipples visible through the negligee's fine silk, and he did not wish to know a single sodding thing about Granger's breasts, other than the information he had already gleaned there. He did not want to know. At all. No more details, thanks. Draco stood, fixed in a limbo, torn between bidding her good night. That would be the safest thing, the wise thing, the right thing, and wanting to stay. That would be masochistic and reckless and stupid. The later one out, of course. Flagellant that he was, Draco remained. He needed to maintain the equilibrium. That was all. He cast about for something to say. No ideas were forthcoming, except for comments about her tits. Brilliant. Draco shook his brain about until something usable fell out, and finally he said, The negligee is superior to the picnic rug. He heard Granger's breath of amusement. The picnic rug is being washed, she looked down at the negligee. I'm pleased you approve. It's terribly muggle. Draco made eye contact with her, a normal amount of eye contact with no looking down, and then looked away. I've rather begun to appreciate muggle fashions. A moment of genuine personal development, said Granger with solemn approval. One mustn't lie idle, you know. One must continue to grow. Onwards and upwards. Expansion. Transformation. Now Draco was concentrating so hard on the appropriate ratio of looking away to eye contact that he was finding the conversation difficult to follow. He also felt like they might be talking about penises. Again. There was a smile playing at the corner of Granger's mouth. Kidnap attempts notwithstanding, her time with him in the manor was serving her well. She was fuller in the face, rosier about the cheeks. Her dimple was back. The picnic rug would make excellent donation fodder for the orphans, said Draco. You always have the orphans' best interest at heart, haven't you? What heart? asked Draco. You have one. It might be a little black shriveled up thing, but it's there. I suppose. And yes, I am selfless that way. Draco Malfoy, the salt of the earth. His name on her lips gave him a little frisson. He wanted to make her say it again and again and again. Sigh it. Groan it. Kiss it out of his mouth. Draco peered out into the darkness. How long does it take for a cat to have a wee? He'll be back soon. He's getting old. It takes him a bit sometimes. How old is he? I'm not sure. He was probably a few years old when I got him in third year. Third year? My word, you've had the bugger for a long time. I have. Measles can live up to 50 years in captivity. And he's half one. I'd like to hope he gets a few good years left. Granger drifted to a window that gave on to the other side of the terrace and looked out. Oh, he's hunting. Well, attempting to, my poor darling. 
Granger propped her elbows upon the window ledge to watch, and Draco, world-class idiot, decided to crowd in behind her to look out, too, because obviously that was an excellent idea. Getting close to her never led to complications. The cat's bandy-legged form was low in the grass outside, making repeated failed pounces at some creature or other. A mouse, do you think? asked Granger. Or a shrew, or a gnome. You ought to charge me for pest control services, if he catches anything. Only if you charge me for my stay here. Certainly not. Occasional life-saving services and bed and board, Granger sighed. Her breath made a mist upon the cold window pane. I am a nauseating imposition. Actually, she was a cherished presence who added a vast pleasure to life in the manor. Disgustingly saccharine, that. Those things fall under the heading of keeping Granger safe, said Draco, which is my job, while you work to cure the incurable. Right, but I don't like feeling indebted to you, Granger interrupted herself with a gasp. Oh, I think he caught it. Look. Draco could have looked out the window just next to her, but no. His idiot brain desired to look out of that one, the one she stood at, obviously. Sickening how this little resistance he had when he was near her. He pushed aside the curtain and leaned over her shoulder to look out. He felt the brush of her hair against his chin. The cat had something in its mouth. That's a leaf, said Draco. Granger laughed. The cat strode proudly across the lawn with its prize held high. Then it was distracted by another leaf and dropped the first and crouched into a prowl. Oh, he's trying again. You needn't stay. This may take a bit. I don't mind. This is entertaining. Granger looked over her shoulder at him. Really? All right. The wind whipped around the house in fitful groans. The waxing moon glowed above the black line of the trees, a fine silver crescent. Granger's smooth shoulder was so close. Draco found himself staring at it, at the fine strap that held her negligee, at the wind-blown shadows that played upon her skin. You aren't in my debt in any capacity, said Draco, to return to the subject. Kind of you to say so, though it doesn't make it true, said Granger. Would you like us to make a list to tally things? Do you think I haven't already conducted that exercise? Of course you have. I know, I'm exasperating, said Granger. Thank you, yes, you are. What was the outcome? Until today, close, but in your favor. I only gave myself half a point for that Talfrin lead, but you've pulled ahead significantly with today's life-saving. Have I? Excellent. I like winning. Hmm. Would you mind toddling off to do something moderately life-threatening? asked Granger with a vague wave of her hand. Choke on a cheesy what's-it or something? Draco laughed. His next breath carried the scent of her shampoo to his nose. He crept in closer. To look at the cat, obviously, who was murdering the leaf with extreme feline violence. When I was at St. Mungo's and having those hallucinations, I saw him fighting the Nundu, said Draco. He was close enough to feel the warmth coming off of her now, through that fine silk, and threw his shirt against his chest. Granger had gone rather still. Did you? Yes. Over and over, in circles. He was fierce. He won, in the end. The cat scampered off and around the corner. Granger pressed her wand to the glass and sent out a lumos, illuminating the lawn. They both leaned forward to observe the next hunt. Now he could feel the silk of her negligee sliding against the fabric of his shirt. Now he could feel the brush of her backside against the front of his trousers. The button at his fly caught at the small of her back. Maintain equilibrium. Maintain the fucking equilibrium. He put a hand on the window ledge. Granger's breath was coming a bit faster. The faint patches that misted against the window gave her away. The feel of her was so 
pleasurable, tempting, ambrosial. What was it about this witch? Why were the forbidden things the sweetest? That, began Draco, then he cleared his throat because his voice had gone husky. That neurotransmission cocktail you had me on, at St. Mungo's. What about it? asked Granger, a kind of breathiness in her voice. It lowers inhibitions? Yes. So people speak the truth when they're on it. Of a sort, it affects certain inhibitory interneurons in the cerebral cortex. This breathless professory voice was a new one. Draco liked it. It removes the usual filters. Most people enter a state of feel-good disinhibition. So when I said I wanted to kiss you, you knew that it was true. It wasn't just delirium. Granger glanced over her shoulder at him. Her eyes were dark. Since when was a look between them so heavy? She nodded. It's a similar effect to alcohol, I suppose, said Draco. A different mechanism, but yes. I've had three fire whiskeys, said Draco. He had a sodden clue where he was going with this. She did. And, said Granger, do you still want to kiss me? The world stopped spinning. He took a moment to answer, as though there would be any other answer than a longing-filled affirmative. He brushed a fingertip at the place where her shoulder and neck met. Yes, just here. Do. The world resumed its spinning, too fast. His brain was a blur. What equilibrium? He had never heard of that word in his life. He lifted her unfurling plaid out of the way. He permitted himself the caress of a finger from the side of her neck down to her shoulder, where the strap of the negligee lay delicately upon her skin. His fingertip went over the strap, though the real urge was to slip it underneath and pull it off her shoulder. The light of her lumos faltered, then went out. He lowered his face to her, felt the warmth of skin, breathed her in. Sleeplessness in the scent of the crandal just burnt. He brushed his mouth against the spot, much looked at, much longed after. He felt her shudder against him, saw her silent, gasped-out breath dissipate against the cold window. He pressed a kiss to the side of her neck, under his lips a memory of the night in the garden, the softness of rose petals. His other hand found the window ledge. Now she was deliciously trapped between his arms. Now she would not be going anywhere. Not that she wanted to escape. She was pressing herself against him, her head against his shoulder, her bum, oft imagined yet never felt, against his groin. He splayed a hand against it and squeezed and felt her surprise jump. He kissed the side of her neck again, then moved, delicious, up to just under her ear. From there he could look down and see her clavicle and the swell of her breasts. The exact shape of them, and yes, the push of nipples under silk, and the fine line of shadow where her breasts pressed together, and the beat of her pulse at the dip between her collarbones. Not fast enough, yet, to echo through his ring finger, but there, fluttering under skin, and if he were to turn her towards him, he could feel it under his lips. He didn't know where to go from here. He knew exactly where to go from here. He didn't know if he should. He knew he shouldn't. He was drenched in endorphins, skin-addicted, pounding-hearted, mind-obliviated. She sighed and backed herself into him further. There was the press of her arse against him, and he was hard, obviously, and he pushed against her, and she made a pleased sound in the back of her throat, but they shouldn't. They shouldn't. She reached up and slid her fingers under the strap of the brace at his shoulder. He slipped an arm around her waist and snatched her against him, and kissed hard kisses at the nape of her neck, and kisses that were more bite than kiss into the shoulder, and her shudder and gasp were the sweetest thing. 
she lifted her other hand over her head and dug her fingers into his hair and rubbed herself against his erection, and it was his turn to hold back a gasp. I'm fucking fourteen again, and I'm going to finish in my pants if you keep that up, he muttered into her neck. Granger breathed out a breathy kind of whine, and she swept her bum against him again. I... God, but we... we really... Shouldn't, ground out Draco between his teeth. No, we shouldn't. We shouldn't, repeated Draco, hating himself. I think that would be... wise. I don't want to be wise. I want to be stupid. You're Granger. That's a contradiction in terms. She removed her hand from his hair. Tragic. You're right. I... I don't know what's come over me. Not Draco, anyway, and more was the pity. We are in the midst of a bloody werewolf resurgence, said Granger. Yes. They are actively trying to kill me. Yes. I was literally kidnapped. Today. Yes. I am working on the most intellectually demanding project I have ever worked on, possibly the most challenging I shall ever work on in my lifetime. Yes. I haven't a brain cell to spare. I haven't any additional mental capacity to dedicate to anything else. Yes, of course. We mustn't add further complications to an already fraught situation. Yes, said Granger. It could make things so much more difficult. Yes. So we shouldn't. We shouldn't. Granger groaned into her palms. What is wrong with me? Tell me when you've worked it out, said Draco. I suffer from the same ailment. Unbridled idiocy is my tentative diagnosis. Granger was still breathless. Right. Okay. All right. This was a dream and it did not happen. Fine. I've never felt more awake in my life. But fine. You are asleep, and so am I. Fine. This didn't happen. There was a muffled meow. The bloody cat had finally seen fit to come back to the house. It sat outside the terrace door, staring at them. Draco wondered how much it had seen. He and Granger stepped away from each other. The new distance seemed cruel and cold. Draco's cock was weeping, in all senses of the word. Granger let the cat in. Her face was flushed, her eyes wide and dark. She left the room and did not look back. Draco turned to leave, then he froze. There, amongst the usual burnt candle waft that trailed Granger, was the unmistakable scent of female arousal. Draco went off to sin. He closed his bedroom door and leaned against it opened his fly, and freed his dripping cock. They had been closer than they had ever been, and the Granger-induced endorphins in his blood made the fantasy so easy, so within reach. He had smelled her. He knew what she smelled like. And she was wet. The fantasy was an easy continuation of the scene downstairs. He imagined turning her to him, and lifting her so that she sat on the window ledge, and pulling down the straps of the negligee so that her lovely tits were finally exposed to him. His mouth would be all over those, from the soft undersides to the nipples that had teased him through silk, which he would tease in turn through tongue and the press of fingertips. And he would edge forward on the window ledge and hold up the silky skirts of the negligee and offer herself to him, wet. And he would take the offering, with kisses and tongue and fingers in rhythm slow at first, then faster. He wanted to taste the places where that arousal had come from. He wanted it all over his chin. And then he'd find the angle she liked best and she would gasp out some instruction, don't stop, or yes, and he would feel the twitch and spasm of her against his fingers and against his mouth. The image put him over the edge. He gasped and pulled back on his cock with one final squeeze, and his orgasm was on him in one, two, three, four spurts. 
Several million Malfoy heirs were splattered onto the floor. Oops. His heart thundered. He fought to regain control of his breathing. There was an echo of a heartbeat in the ring. It was hers. She was not the only sinner that night. Chapter 30. Sam Hain. Larson's capture was an enormous blow to Greyback, but it was not yet the coup de grace. They needed to find the man himself. In spite of his occlumency, Larson had been so marinated in veritaserum by Tonks that he produced an excellent series of leads. The next day, the hunter became the hunted. Potter and the WTF came close twice, cornering Greyback in a cabin in the Lake District and then again in a hideaway in the Shetland Islands. He only just slipped out of their grasp both times. Potter raged. The silver lining was that Greyback was running out of secure bolt holes, as Larson had compromised a half-dozen locations. That silver lining was tempered by a worry amongst the oars that he was going to become increasingly desperate and escalate. Draco was given leave to scour the Viking's brain in a day-long interrogation session while the WTF hunted to see what else he could find. Tonks joined him in the interrogation room, along with Brimble. Larson, bound hand and foot to a chair, glared balefully at them. Good morning, said Tonks to Larson with a frightfully kind of brightness. Lovely chat yesterday. Thank you again. Have you had a think about any other bits and bobs you'd like to share with us? Locations? Plans? Any machinations against Healer Granger that we ought to know about? Larson stared at her in a stony silence. Otherwise, continued Tonks, we've received ministerial permission to proceed with a spot of legitimacy. If you haven't any more information you'd offer willingly, or Malfoy will be fetching it directly from the source. Fetch it, then, said Larson. Brimble, make note that Larson has declined to cooperate, said Tonks. Larson turned his stare to Draco and spat at his feet. The defiance delighted Draco. Larson was going to put up a fight. Do that again, and I shall cast a desiccatus directly into your throat, said Draco, drawing a stool towards Larson. He held his wand to the center of Larson's forehead and said, Legilimens. Larson was arrogant. Legilimens were rare, and good ones were even rarer. Now that he was no longer bleeding out, his sophisticated oculomancy barriers were firmly back in place, except where the residual effects of yesterday's veritaserum softened them at the edges. He had good reason to be arrogant. As Draco pushed into his mind, he had to admit that Larson's defenses were impressive, a vast, nigh-impenetrable wall. The resistance gave Draco an excuse to be rough and cruel, and rough and cruel he was. He cracked, he tore, he smashed— he had every advantage, the magical push of his wand, Larson's lingering bearer to serum, the pent-up rage fueling his assault, and he used them. The more Larson resisted, the more Draco hurt him. Before long, Draco had given the Viking contusions throughout his mind to match those that he left on Granger's body. In the silence of the interrogation room, the battle of wills raged. Draco could feel Larson reeling in surprise at the violence of the battering, he had underestimated both Draco's legitimacy and his sheer force of will when it came to this particular subject. He paid for it. Larson's nose began to bleed. Brimble twitched. Tonk said nothing. Larson, feeling his barriers fade, began to offer Draco images, distractions, fabrications. Draco did not want those. He swept them away and hammered at the wall. He found a fissure. He pried it open and broke through. Larson pulled his memories into darker recesses. Draco dragged them back out. Draco rifled through the memories, pausing occasionally when Larson scrambled to put up a barrier, with increasingly diminishing returns for his effort. It had been Larson who had wandered too close to Granger's cottage many months ago for a spot of reconnaissance. Draco found conversations between Greyback and Larson, 
Larson considered Greyback a hot-tempered old fool, but useful for the sheer manpower that he and his pack offered. He found arguments about Granger. Greyback, when he had learned of the rumors surrounding her treatment, had simply wanted to kill her. Larson was the one who had devised the grander plans. The notion of creating a variant of lycanthropy virus had made Greyback wild with delight. He had been so eager to confirm that Granger had actually isolated the virus that he had ordered the cock-handed break-in attempt. It had infuriated Larson, who asked furiously what Greyback thought his brainless louts would discover in a scientific laboratory run by Britain's foremost magical researcher. Now they'd ramped up the security measures. Now everything would be more difficult. They almost had a permanent falling out, then almost dueled each other, but each needed the other more than he wanted to kill him. Draco pressed and searched, but Larson did not know who had informed Greyback of Granger's project. Greyback had been careful enough there, and by design, in mutual agreement, Larson only knew of a handful of Greyback's hideouts, most of which had already been discovered by Tonks the day before. A pity. Draco dictated a few additional locations to Brimble as he found them. Then Draco found memories of himself, first as the pilot in the pub, doting on Granger, and then as the aura putting his life on the line for her during the knife fight. He saw the wildness in his own eyes when he told Larson she's definitely worth what I'm going to do to you. He saw how it fed every subsequent blow and stab. Larson had concluded that Draco was some kind of mad-eyed lover of Granger's. Linked to that thought were more memories, shrouded by fear of discovery, that Larson wished to hide from Draco in particular. As Draco approached them, Larson grew panicky. Don't, said Larson, throwing up a final desperate barrier. Draco did. He found memories of conversations between Larson and Greyback, drunkenly discussing what they would do with Granger when they'd got what they needed out of her. They were graphic. They were vile. You bloody swine, spat Draco. Then came Larson's imaginings themselves, beyond the memories of the conversation. Draco came close to losing control. Blood oozed from Larson's tear ducts. Tonks put her hand on Draco's shoulder. The Larson who was escorted out of the interrogation room did not have the mental acuity of the one who had entered it. He never fully recovered. In the days that followed, the Viking was extradited to Denmark. The Danish Aurors, having learned of Larson's plans, did not muck about. Their head Auror, himself a lycanthrope, took a deep personal offense to Larson's revolting project. Larson's laboratory was raided, evidence removed, contents documented, then the Danes proceeded with a bold renovation project in the form of blowing the entire place up. Lady Sarah reported that, by and large, her queries about Pandora's box were greeted by tittering, until one day, in late October, she sent a note with a wisp of a rumor about a reclusive collector, a Frenchman living in Spain called Le Marquis d'Artois. With a bit of jauntiness in his step, Draco went off in search of Granger to convey the good news. Granger had taken to long walks through the manor's grounds to stave off lab-induced cabin fever. Draco found her near the hippocampus fountain casting a warming charm on herself to ward off the chill. She smiled when she saw him. He said, Clark, to himself. Draco fell into step beside her and only half listened as she spoke. The other half of his brain was occupied by the shape of her mouth and the play of the sun in her hair. Today, the flue hearth had been installed at her laboratory, open only to bilateral travel between the manor and the lab. The flue technician had not recognized Granger. He thought the nice young lady was a graduate student, and he had been so impressed by her incisive questions on the flu creation process that he offered her a job as a trainee on the spot. I had to decline, Granger sighed wistfully, but it was tempting. I wonder what it'd be like to have a proper nine-to-five, you know? A normal job. Too bad, said Draco. You can't leave off saving the world halfway through. It simply wouldn't be sporting. 
he gave her Lady Sarah's note. We've got a lead on Pandora's box. Granger skimmed through the missive. A few details worthy of note, said Draco as Granger read. The Marquis never sells anything, never loans anything to museums, and never offers viewings of his collection. Only buys things on occasion. And when he does, nothing less than the rarest magical artifacts interest him. He never sells anything? Of course he doesn't. Why would this be simple? He's known for it. Rather disliked for it, actually. In collector circles. He has one of the greatest collections of arcane objects on the planet, and not a single one has left his possession after acquisition. No sales, no bartering for other relics. Greedy sort of bugger, by all accounts. Granger walked pensively along the leaf-strewn path. That doesn't leave us many options, then, does it? We may once again have to do evil, so that good may follow. Ooh, I believe that you are about to suggest something naughty. You sound titillated, said Granger, holding back a smile. I am. May I safely assume that your moral stance on thievery hasn't shifted since Provence? That did nothing but whet my appetite for it. Granger's look was a mixture of relief and reproof. You're an oar. Hadn't you better think twice? Darling, I didn't even think once. Draco flipped his hair. I am an absolute maverick, you know. I'm half a mind to quit this aura business and become a gentleman thief. Let's steal the box. That would be quite a feather in my cap. I don't really want Pandora's box, though. I want what's in it. What's in it? Hope. Are we talking Hesiod's myth, quite literally? Asked Draco with his eyebrows raised. Granger nodded. Revelations hasn't misled me yet. Do you remember the final step when brewing sanitatum? No, I've never brewed it. It's a ten-minute stir, accompanied by a kind of meditation over the cauldron by the potioner. Spiramus is the incantation. We hope. The strongest sanitatum is made with the strongest infusion of hope in that final stage. Pandora's box would contain it in its purest form. As with every other element, the same ingredient class, but the magical potencies would be stronger by hundreds of orders of magnitude. Right, so what's the plan? Granger grew pensive. This Marquis d'Artois likes exceedingly rare things. He does. A pity we returned the Magdalene skull. That would have tempted the man, I'm sure. We could have gotten an audience, at least, and had a poke inside his hacienda. Granger shook her head. If we hadn't returned her, I expect we'd be dead by now. Those nuns would have been out for blood. Have you any sort of ancient family possession that might intrigue the Marquis enough to grant us an interview? The rings? Versions of those exist among many old families. They're rare enough, but not quite so unique that they'd interest someone like the Marquis. I don't suppose your Uncle Snodsbury's hourglass has any magical properties? Mmm, sometimes it gets flatulent. Granger gasped out a cackle, then attempted to find her dignity again. Really? It's true. Right. Well, unless the Marquis has a specific interest in Borborygamus, I don't think that we will be much of use. Granger grew silent and thoughtful as they weaved through the tree trunks and heaps of red gold leaves. Draco ran his mental inventory of the Malfoy family heirlooms, of which there were many. Jewels and weapons and diverse thingamies. But none were quite in the league of items that would impress a collector as discerning as the Marquis. Granger cut into his reverie with an explosion of revelation. I know where the Elder Wand is. Draco walked into a tree, tripped on a forgotten rake, and fell into an enormous pile of leaves. What? he said, popping his head out of the leaves, while also making a note to sack the groundskeeper. Granger leaned contemplatively against a tree and took stock of the situation. What you've done there, Malfoy, is gone arse over tits. 
Then, with the smugness of one who has been waiting to exert her revenge for months, she explained various laws of physics that he hadn't quite applied correctly, including the importance of not wedging one's overlarge feet under gardening implements. She had made a critical error, however, unlike Granger in a pit in Provence. Draco had his wand. He waved it at her and dragged her into the leaves with him. Her indignant shriek made everything that followed worthwhile. Her landing on top of him and elbowing him in the solar plexus, he was 90% certain that it was accidental. The handful of leaves she shoved into his face, the dirt and twigs in his hair. Draco defended himself from her leaves with his own fistful of them, which caught in her hair as she struggled to get away from him. "'How dare you! I just washed my hair!' shrieked Granger. She attempted to roll off of Draco and knead him in the balls instead. "Ah," oh, said Draco, curling his legs in. He fell into a silent, ball-cupping paroxysm. Granger froze with a gasp. Oh, my God. Malfoy, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to... She fluttered above him anxiously. I'm fine, said Draco. Are you sure? Yes. Granger was looking at him with wide-eyed compassion. You can explain to my mother why she'll never have grandchildren. Perhaps he shouldn't have splattered them upon the floor so liberally. He felt better after a few more breaths. The pain receded. The bollock was unruptured. Probably. Perhaps he ought to make Granger check. To be safe. Also, by the way, Granger poised above him, her hands planted in leaves on either side of his head. She was a nymph, crowned in wine-oak red. She was the loveliest of autumn, the warmth of the hearth fire against chill evenings, the elusiveness of summer's last goodbye, lined with the golden sun. Enchanting. The want. To pull her down on top of him, to kiss her, was searing. But one dallied with nymphs at one's peril. Draco merely drank in the loveliness. The want fractured his soul. It was fine. The nymph almost hit him in the balls again as she rose. They found their feet. The bloody elder one, prompted Draco, casting Evanesco upon the remains of the quashed worm on his arse. Granger plucked leaves from her hair. Yes, it's irreparably broken, of course. Harry snapped it in half. But would something like that interest the Marquis? One of the Deathly Hallows. Obviously. Broken or not, that is an artifact. I'd have to ask for Harry's permission to use it as our bargaining chip. If he says yes, it shouldn't be too complicated to obtain. It's unguarded, as far as I know. The Elder Wand. Unguarded? Are you serious? Yes. Granger glanced at him. Do you fancy nipping out to raid a tomb, as a cheeky little warm-up for our larger heist? Let's, said Draco, wildly intrigued. At the manor, Granger flew Potter, who gave his blessing for the use of the remains of the Elder Wand indicating that he, frankly, did not care what they did with it. Just get Granger's bloody project done, for God's sakes, before they were all turned into werewolves. That night, Draco and Granger popped into Hogsmeade, from whence they wandered on to the Hogwarts grounds and, disillusioned, contemplated life and death piously over Dumbledore's tomb. Draco, being a clumsy sort of wizard, accidentally dismantled all of the tomb's wards and tripped over and pushed off the enormous marble slab with that covered the grave. Then the Elder Wand fell, quite by chance, into Granger's hands, and she, out of sheer ineptitude, created a perfect duplicate of it, and, by absolute happenstance, dropped the duplicate into the tomb, and they left with the Elder Wand in her pocket, without noticing that it had fallen in. After some deliberation, they decided that Draco should request an introduction to the Marquis via Lady Sierra. Their hope was that the Malfoy name, along with his offer of the remains of the Elder Wand, might carry sufficient cachet and credibility to intrigue the Marquis. It worked. The Marquis wrote a brief message to Draco, delivered by a gorgeous lyrebird, inviting him to Malaga. The Marquis proposed a hotel on the waterfront for the meet, 
Draco countered with worries about his personal safety, given the value of the object he would be carrying with him, and invited the Marquis to the manor instead. As they had hoped, the Marquis declined the trip to England, but offered his own villa as a meeting place, if Mr. Malfoy would be more inclined to meet there. His only request would be that Mr. Malfoy comply with his security measures and come alone. Granger pursed her lips while reading the last bit, bent over Draco's shoulder. Reply in the positive. We'll find a way to circumvent that particular bit of buggery. You certainly can't do this alone, absolute maverick or no. Can't I? No. What an abhorrent lack of faith. What are you thinking, then? I've got a few ideas, said Granger. Now she was eyeing Draco speculatively, twirling her wand between her fingers. Draco did not like the feeling. They packed the elder wand, with a silken ribbon around its snapped middle, into a gorgeous case of satin and granado wood. The wand was inert to Draco's hand as it nestled into the case. Kindling, really. Not even a spark left. It might still have the power to do one last bit of good, said Granger. The international flew to Malaga took six minutes. Granger emerged from it with a tender green tint of young asparagus. A bored immigration wizard observed her, then gave Draco forms to fill out for him and his esposa, as well as a sick bag. For his profession, Draco put, ne'er-do-well, absolute maverick, and for Granger's, arsonist. She was too bilious to notice. The Marquis lived just outside of one of the Pueblos Blancos, along Spain's southern coast. Draco and Granger took a room in the villa a few kilometers away to finalize their preparations for the heist. The designated time found Draco and Granger striding up to the drive to the D'Artois villa. Well, Granger strode. Draco trotted along next to her, a long, feathery tail swishing elegantly behind him. Because, yes, Draco had been transfigured into a bourgeois. And Granger was Draco. Draco, observing Granger Draco from his new height, just at her waist, told himself that there was no way he walked with quite so much hip. Really made his bum pop, though. He had such a perfect arse. They came to the end of the drive. The Marquis's house wasn't a villa at all. The thing was, frankly, another Alhambra, nestled into the Andalusian hills. Enormous gates swung open as they approached. Pairs of guards, armed with wands and ceremonial swords, flanked the drive at regular intervals and observed them wordlessly as they passed. Cheery lot, muttered Granger Draco to Draco. They walked across the splendid gardens, rich with almond trees, lemon groves, cascading fountains, and dazzling flowers of every color. Exotic fowl strutted about. Peacocks, pheasants, demoiselle cranes. They came to the villa's front doors. A black-robed butler greeted Granger Draco. A tall, well-built sort of butler, whose gait and breadth of shoulders suggested something more of a bodyguard than the manservant. His wand was holstered at his forearm, and the strategic once-over he gave Granger Draco told Draco that he knew what he was about. They followed the butler through a series of courtyards, crossing over ponds glittering with golden koi. Granger Draco, holding the elder wand's box under her arm as she strode, was doing an excellent job of looking Malfoyish, unimpressed by any of it. Draco heard her sniff. They arrived at an anteroom, at the end of which glittered a translucent sort of wall, a magical shield of some kind. A small figure, slightly distorted by the wall, appeared. It spoke with an aristocratic accented voice. Mr. Malfoy, welcome. I do hope that your travels did not fatigue you. Can Francois proceed with the usual checks, for my peace of mind? Granger Draco inclined her head and replied in French. Monsieur le Marquis, a pleasure. Please proceed. I am eager to begin our discussion. 
the butler cast a series of weapon revelation spells on Granger Draco, exposing her wand and the knife that Draco typically had strapped to his thigh. The butler proffered a tray, upon which Granger Draco placed these items. Draco's wand was subject to an identification spell, which glowingly confirmed that Mr. Draco Lucius Malfoy was its owner. The butler asked Granger Draco what was in the flask at her hip. Only water, said Granger Draco, proffering it to him for inspection. The flask was subjected to five spells before the butler was satisfied that its contents were innocuous. The Elder Wand's box was opened and similarly subjected to detection spells, to no effect. I presume you have no objections to Francois keeping hold of your wand and knife. Only the duration of our chat, of course, said the Marquis from behind the shield. After Granger Draco's gesture of agreement, Francois slipped the wand and knife into his robes. I do appreciate your patience with my foibles, said the Marquis. May I inquire about the dog? My familiar, said Granger Draco, stroking Draco's sleek head. He can wait here, if that is your wish. Oh, no, I understand the urge to keep one's precious things by one's side, you know, more than anyone. Is the creature good-tempered? I shall have Francois run a few spells on it, and then we can proceed. Francois cost a few spells on Draco, including Finite Incantatum, but an animagus detection charm. Nothing happened. Draco wagged his tail and let his tongue loll out of his mouth. Excellent, said the Marquis. The dog is a dog. Let them through, Francois. Draco breathed a doggy sigh of relief. Inspired by the pelt of the Oisenhind, Granger had rigged what she called a kind of Faraday cage out of her anti-magic pucks with some wiring. The rig was now strapped to his body, covered by his thick fur. They had tested it at length. It wouldn't deflect serious curses, but lighter spells at a distance seemed to fizzle out within the perimeter. The butler lowered the shimmering wall, revealing the Marquis. Draco trotted at Granger Draco's side and took stock of the man. He was slight of build and garbed in a violet suit that was tastefully tailored, though the cut of it seemed almost antique. A pair of bright blue eyes sparkled with intelligence in a face that seemed, strangely, both old and young. To Draco's doggishly overzealous nose, he reeked of fine cigars. And gold. A borzoi, is it? said Marquis, looking at Draco. Noble animal. Unusual breed. What's his name? Granger Draco glanced down at Draco with her eyebrows raised. His name? It's Crotch. Crotch? repeated the Marquis in a strong French accent. Yes, it means clever. In, uh, Mermish. I didn't name him. How came you by him? Friends in St. Petersburg. Oh, what friends? I've got some connections there. The uh, Mikhailovs. Hmm, I haven't the pleasure of their acquaintance. Draco bounded forwards and put his head under the Marquis's hand in an attempt to distract the man from further prying. The Marquis looked pleased and gave him a few pats. Quite a happy chap, eh? Yes, you are a good boy. Draco trotted ahead, sniffing about, wondering if he should piss on something for added authenticity. They came to a new courtyard, pierced at regular intervals by thin wooden columns. At the center of it was an elegant arrangement of furniture. The Marquis raised his hand, and Francois, who had been lurking unseen, advanced with drinks. "'Would crotch like a biscuit?' asked the Marquis. "'No, that's quite all right. He's on a special diet.' "'Oh? He's constipated.' "'Ah, poor fellow.' Draco wagged his tail as though nothing gave him more joy than constipation. Granger Draco took a glass of wine from Francois and swirled it with a haughty gesture. "'Draco was not that haughty.' "'How do you find it?' asked the Marquis when Draco had tasted it. "'I tend to prefer my wines more full-bodied,' said Granger Draco with a sniff. "'But this is excellent.' One of the Marquis's eyebrows twitched at this faint praise. "'I see. 
He examined his own glass. I am afraid I cannot linger too long. I am rather busy this evening. Granger Draco produced an excellent, insincere smile. I would be delighted to dispense with further small talk. Shall I show you what I've come with? She settled herself on the sofa. Draco laid himself at her feet. She opened the Elder One's glossy box and held it towards the Marquis. Snapped in half by Harry Potter on the 2nd of May, 1998. The Marquis's eyes were bright as he leaned over to look. This seems fortuitous. You have brought me a hollow on All Hallows' Eve. Indeed. How came you by it? Potter owed me a rather large favor. A favor? I can't provide further details. The Marquis nodded. Of course, I did not mean to pry. Do you mind if I... Granger Draco nodded yes and held the box to the Marquis. He picked up the wand and inspected it, first with the naked eye and then with a silver loop, then with a golden one. Lovely, lovely. Might I cast a few spells upon it? Granger Draco waved an indifferent hand in acquiescence. She captured Draco's mannerisms with an almost offensive accuracy, only a bit too affected for Draco himself to be convinced. He wasn't this pretentious, surely. Fifteen inches, Elderwood, Thestral Tale, Hayar, said the Marquis, flicking through the various spells as he confirmed the Elder Wand's authenticity. Fascinating. This is quite a piece of history you have here, Mr. Malfoy. I am a veritable fiend for storied magical items, and the Elder One is, well, quite one of the Holy Grails, you know. Such a pity that it was broken. I am certain that Mr. Potter had only the Wizarding World's best interest at heart, but... Draco rose and shook himself, leaving a mist of white fur on Granger Draco, and began to wander about the courtyard, looking as bored as possible. He drifted about, sniffing here and there, until he found Francois's lurking place. He could find no other trace of domestic staff on guards nearby. His doggishly enhanced hearing did catch what sounded like the kitchens, possibly off to the right, the high voices of house elves. Further beyond, he could hear cackling screeching. Monkeys? He returned to Granger Draco and laid himself sphinx-like at her feet. This was the signal for her to make a move, to request a viewing of the Marquis's collection, and if the response was no, then things were about to get messy. Let us proceed to the part that I despise the most. How much are you asking for, for this thing without a price? asked the Marquis. What can you offer me that I can't buy for myself? The Marquis's eyebrows rose. I had understood from our exchanges that you were interested in selling. I do not barter pieces for my collection, if that is what you are suggesting. Granger Draco shrugged. Frankly, I'm more interested in finding a worthy home for this piece of history than anything else. I will tell you what you can offer me that I can't buy. A little tour of your legendary collection. The Marquis's face closed. Absolutely not. Granger Draco sighed. Right. I had hoped for a bit of flexibility on your part. Thought that this was a rather generous offer, in fact. The Elder One, for a few moments of your time. I respect your decision, of course. Granger Draco packed the Elder One back into its box and closed the lid with a snap. Thank you, nevertheless, for... Wait! The Marquis was looking at the box with a greedy yearning. You simply want a tour of my collection, he asked, in exchange for the wand. Yes? Why? Because that, too, would be a thing without a price, said Granger Draco with a smirk. I don't believe you've ever permitted a viewing. Indeed, I haven't, said the Marquis, looking grave. He glanced toward Francois, who looked distinctly unhappy. Then he looked at the box again. He turned back to Granger Draco. We will do a tour. A quarter of an hour. You are to follow my instructions and, of course, touch nothing. Of course. And at the end of the tour, the Elder Wand will be mine. That is correct. 
The Marquis looked serious. What an unusual turn of events. Monsieur le Marquis, are you, are you quite certain? queried Francois. The Marquis's eyes were riveted on the Grendelwood box. There was a muscle going in his cheek as he worked his way through an internal struggle. At length, he said, You have Mr. Malfoy's wand, Francois. I don't think he would be able to do very much damage. Not that I would cast any such aspersions upon your character, Mr. Malfoy. Francois is simply being careful. I understand. If there is anything else I can do for added peace of mind, shall I leave the dog behind? Oh, no, Mr. Crutch can come, said the Marquis, bending towards Draco and clicking his tongue at him. He's a good lad. Draco did a spot of gambling around the Marquis's legs to demonstrate what a good lad he was. Yes, that's right. You are a good boy. Yes, you are. Yes. Does he give kisses? It was difficult to gamble when you were transfixed by sudden horror. Draco did not want to give kisses. Granger Draco's mouth twitched. Er, no, I trained that out of him. Oh? He has horrid breath. Draco gave Granger Draco a look that distinctly said, I beg your pardon. The Marquis was scratching his ears. Naughty. We must brush your teeth more often, mustn't we? Yes, you are a clever boy. You look almost as though you understand. A crotchy boy, I should say, rather. Eh, in Mermish? Francois, lead the way, if you please. They crossed into a vast room with tall arches and an ornately carved ceiling. They came to a door, heavily warded, with two expressionless wizards standing guard on either side. The Marquis turned Granger Draco's attention to the ceiling deliberately. Take a moment to admire this craftsmanship, a representation of these seven Islamic heavens through which the soul must ascend after death. Beautiful. Meanwhile, Francois waved away layer after layer of wards. Draco sat a little ways away, like the good boy he was, and observed carefully. The dog hearing was useful. He could even hear the man's incantations. The heavily warded door was opened. Now the tour began. The Marquis was rather twitchy and stiff-backed at first. However, Granger Draco offered the precise amount of gasping and ooing, probably genuine, to flatter him, and he warmed up to the tour. Francois followed at a distance, frowning, his wand aimed at Granger Draco's back. They passed through room after room of breathtaking artifacts. The Marquis offered a running commentary on the items. Those are feathers from Hugin and Moonin, Odin's ravens. The very first bonsai, Han Dynasty. The frankincense offered to the Christ child by the biblical magi. Montezuma's staff, very temperamental. I've only played with it once. Transformed my valet into a tortilla. A lock of Samson's hair. Lakshmi's lotus. Acquired that in Kolompor. Archangel Sandalfon's harp. They passed into another room, and the Marquis continued. Ah, a few rarities from your part of the world. That is a pelt from one of the hounds of Anwen. Don't look too closely at it, Crutch. It looks rather a lot like yours, doesn't it? Poor boy. The beautiful Excalibur. You are familiar with that one, of course. Cost me a pretty canut. And here, Saradwin's cauldron if you know her legend. I have heard something of it, said Granger Draco in a strangled voice. They came to a door leading into a room full of books. Books on shelves, books on plinths, books and display cases. The Marquis strode past the door with a wave. We shan't go in there. We would spend far too long, and we mustn't tarry. My most recent addition to the library is Nostradamus' original manuscript for Les Prophecies. Quite a coup. I was never so pleased. Good man, Nostradamus. Actually, quite funny in person, uh, so they say, anyway. Granger Draco looked longingly into the room and made a sound suggestive of a great suffering, holding her heart. Are you all right, Mr. Malfoy? 
Oh, yes, a spot of indigestion. Heartburn. They carried on down another corridor, which branched off to a cage-filled courtyard to the left. The Marquis had a menagerie. That explained the monkeys. He waved his hand in that direction. A few interesting specimens from abroad. There is an aviary behind, and a butterfly garden. But let us proceed apace. The archway broke off into three more directions. At the end of one, Draco saw the glow of a violet flame in a dark room. The Marquis shut that door as they passed with a casual wave of his wand, drawing Granger Draco's attention instead to a petrified chimera. At last, they came to the collection of objects from the ancient world. It was housed in a room styled as a Grecian temple, with Doric columns supporting an enormous central dome. The walls were marble and rippled with moving carvings of mythological scenes. Let me see now. What are the most interesting pieces? said the Marquis, standing in the center of it all before whisking Granger Draco to a glass display case. That is the Animoi, the original compass. And this, what do you make of it? Granger Draco studied the small object under a glass dome. Uh, it looks like a dried fruit. It is. The remains of the original pomegranate, eaten by Persephone. Incredible. The Marquis pointed to a vast beam reaching the ceiling, strung with ancient rigging aglow with stasis charms. The mast of the Argonaut, I am pursuing the Golden Fleece, have been for many years. I think they ought to be reunited, don't you? Oh, yes, of course. Hmm. Here is Pandora's box, rather less of a box than a jar, as you see. A pithos would be the correct term. And here, the Omphalos, from the Oracle at Delphi. Hephaestes' anvil, absurdly heavy. I can't tell you what a fuss it was to have that brought in. Draco came to lean on Granger Draco's legs, as a slightly bored dog who wanted attention might. They had located the box. It was time to proceed to the next step. The Marquis, observing Draco's lean, said, I hope you won't take offense. I know that he is your familiar, but you must tell me if you would ever consider parting with the dog. He is such a well-behaved specimen. He would add a nice dash of imperial sophistication to my menagerie. Oh, no, he is unfortunately rather dear to me. Granger Draco stroked Draco's head. I really am too fond of him to let him go. Of course, worth the ask. It always is. Now, this was a find. The skull of Typhius. Draco and Granger had made several plans for the different scenarios. Granger now scratched at Draco's left ear, signaling the fun one. Francois was hovering brutally at the door, wand out, though it was pointed at the floor. Feigning a sudden playfulness, Draco bounded towards the man and put his arse in the air gods, and wagged his tail. "'What does Crutch want?' asked the Marquis. Then, seeing Draco's bow, he gasped. "'Oh, Francois, he thinks you have a stick. Silly boy, that's a wand!' Draco leapt and plucked the stick out of Francois's hand. He gambled away. He was becoming quite an expert at gambling, and then he darted back towards Francois, the wand in his mouth. Francois lunged at him. Draco darted away, then darted towards him again. "'He's playing keep-away with you, Francois,' chortled the Marquis." Draco and Granger had practiced this particular bit over many hours. The key was to make it look unintentional and harmless. Draco shook his head with a shower of sparks flew out of the wand, quite at random. Then he tossed the wand to himself, bounded away to catch it, at which point a small flock of birds jetted out of it. Francois gave chase to in earnest. Draco whipped the wand about and it hit him with an aguamenti, his tail a whirl of doggy delight. The Marquis was laughing. Francois was terribly unamused. Granger Draco made futile attempts to call Crotch to heel. Draco waited for Francois to lunge and hit him with the locomotor wibbly, in a playful, gambling sort of way. Francois careened head first into a wall. 
The Marquis was hit by a stunner. Granger Draco leapt to action, kneeling next to Francois to retrieve Draco's wand, carefully removing the Faraday rig from Draco and transfiguring him back into himself. Finally, breathed Draco, delighted to be on two legs again. Granger stunned Francois for good measure and cast silencing charms around them. They sprinted to Pandora's box, odd feeling sprinting next to oneself. Draco took his wand from Granger and got to work on the protective warding that surrounded the pithos. Seventeen minutes left on my polyjuice dose,' said Granger. Draco, sweating, peeled away the layers of wards surrounding the jar. "'Right. These aren't too bad. I think the worst of them were at that first door. Give me two more minutes.' Granger conducted her own preparations, pulling out the flask of water and dumping its contents where Draco's aguamenti had left puddles. "'Ready?' said Draco. Granger Draco's hand hesitated over the pithos. "'My God. What? Don't tell me you've suddenly developed a scruple.' Are we really going to open Pandora's box? She already did it once. The worst is out, isn't it? Yes. They stared at one another. Let's do it, said Granger. Together, they lifted the heavy lid. It came off with a grinding sort of creakiness. They both stepped back, half expecting the remainder of the world's plagues to be unleashed into their faces. But no, the jar was brimming with hope. In its pure, physical form, hope was a nebulous, luminous substance simultaneously curling in upon itself and expanding in quivers of trust, conviction, and faith. How beautiful, sighed Granger Draco. Take it and let's get on, prodded Draco, passing her his wand again. Granger Draco delicately pressed the wand into the substance and siphoned it into her flask. This left a significant divot in the hope in Pandora's box, but only for a moment, and then it reshaped itself, and the jar brimmed again. Right, breathed Granger Draco. Hope isn't finite. It's infinite. There was no time for breathy philosophizing on the nature of hope. Draco elbowed Granger Draco out of the way, slid the lid of Pandora's pithos back on, and recast the wards. The flask was secreted into Granger Draco's cloak. Ready? asked Granger Draco, pointing the wand at Draco. Bloody hell. Here we go. Yes. If you call me constipated again, I shall bite you. Grinning, Granger Draco transfigured him back into a dog, she slipped the rig of anti-magic pucks back onto him, lashing them into deep fur. She shoved Draco's wands back into Francois's pocket. Then she ran to the Marquis's side and used his wand to enervate him and Francois. Oh, Monsieur le Marquis, are you all right? I am so sorry. Crutch hit you with something, the silly dog. Just a stunner, I think. I have put him in the corner. He is punished. The Marquis rose with a look of dazed annoyance. Francois, however, regained his feet with deep suspicion in his eyes. He snatched up his wand and aimed it at Draco. Draco sat in a corner, looking downtrod, and wagged his tail pathetically. "'That's not a bloody dog,' said Francois. "'Venite and concatum!' He aimed the spell squarely at Draco's fluffy chest. Nothing happened. "'Frankly, Francois, you've already cast that one on the poor creature. Now he's flinching.' The Marquis was dusting himself off. "'Kindly stop terrorizing the animal.' "'Thank you,' said Granger Draco, giving Francois a severe look. It was an unfortunate accident. Let us call that an end to the tour. I mustn't impose upon your time any further. Francois, his mouth pulled down in a bitter grimace, cast revelation charms about the room. All of the wards were perfectly intact. I do agree with you there, Mr. Malfoy, said the Marquis. Let me show you out. They followed the Marquis. Francois muttered behind them and stared blackly at Draco, who regarded him with panting friendliness and did a spot of additional frolicking. Finally, they came to the very first anteroom. I must leave you here, said the Marquis. He looked with significance at the box in Granger Draco's hands. It is my very great pleasure to give this to you, as agreed.
said Granger Draco, passing him the box. The Marquis took it and opened it again, as though to reassure himself that the wand hadn't vanished from it through the, some sleight of hand. Some things in life haven't got a price, said Granger Draco. This evening's tour has been a revelation. Some of the most magical moments of my life, I dare say. You should be proud of this collector's joie de vivre. Truly unsurpassed. The Marquis inclined his head. My labor of love, over a great many years. Farewell, Mr. Malfoy, and do tell me if you change your mind about parting with Crotch. I shan't, but I will tell you if I hear anything on the whereabouts of the Golden Fleece, said Granger Draco with a smirk. The Marquis sighed. Do. He waved his wand, and the translucent wall shimmered back into existence. Francois returned Draco's wand and knife to Granger Draco. Then, with a look of absolute hatred towards Draco, he escorted them back to the gates, through the gardens, past the long line of stone-faced guards, and muttered out a good night. The gates clanged shut behind them and shuddered with a fresh series of wards cast by the angry butler. Granger Draco, grinning, put her arm around Draco and disapparated. At the hotel, Draco and Granger Draco cast silencing spells around their room and proceeded to bounce about frenetically, unable to believe what they had just pulled off. Granger Draco was clutching her face, pacing and hyperventilating. Draco spun about and landed on the bed, laughing. We fucking did it! I can't believe it, said Granger Draco. Gods, what a rush, said Draco. We must stop stealing things before we trigger some latent kleptomania in you. I am truly considering a career change. Granger Draco paused in her circular pacing and grimaced. Right, I desperately need a wee. So go, said Draco, waving toward the toilet. But I'm you for nine more minutes, said Granger Draco, consulting the clock. Oh, Draco felt a smirk make its way upon his face. What's the matter? You don't want to hold my willy? I mean, I can go in there and hold it for you if you'd like, so you can piss with your eyes closed? Absolutely not, said Granger Draco. Are you sure? Yes, I'll just make it quick. Do I sit or do I stand? I'll sit. I don't want to splash everywhere. Don't be ridiculous. The entire point of being a man is to stand. Granger Draco disappeared into the loo with a rather stiff back. Draco got to experience the intriguing and annoying sensation of Granger touching his penis without him being there to enjoy it. The expression on her face when she returned to the room was interesting. Well, said Granger Draco, emerging from the toilet, that explains your feet. About that definition of lar... Granger Draco pointed a violent index finger at him. Don't. Draco cackled. When the final few minutes of the polyjuice dose had elapsed, there was a kind of melting about Granger Draco, and Granger appeared, positively swimming in his clothes. Draco turned around on the bed so that she could change. You were rather good at being me, though some of your mannerisms were a touch exaggerated. You make an extraordinarily convincing Borzoi. I do not flip my hair like that. That was your own invention. Did you see Francois's face at the end? He suspected something, I know. The pucks worked. Thank goodness he was only hitting you at range and didn't try anything nastier. Granger, now in a lovely little summer dress, joined him on the bed. Draco noted that she hadn't glamoured her scar. Did you see the Marquis' collection? asked Draco. Yes, outrageous. I've never seen anything like that in my life, nor will I ever again. Any one of those items was worth the entire GDP of some countries. Greedy bastard, isn't he? The book room, sighed Granger, clutching at her breast. He has Excalibur, the mast of the Argonaut, Persephone's bloody pomegranate, Saradwin's Caldwin. How? Who is he? 
I think I know, said Draco. And if I'm right, who? Did you see the flame? The purple one? Uh, I don't think I did. He closed the door as we passed it. A violet fire in a dark room. I think. I think it was the violet flame. Granger gasped. The violet flame? Yes, that one. The one that was only ever mastered by one alchemist. No. Yes. Draco laughed in disbelief. No. Granger. It can't have been. Yes, it must have been. I think we just met one of the greatest alchemists who ever lived. I think we just met the Comte de Saint-Germain. Granger sputtered. No. No. How? How else do you explain that collection? That must have been assembled over centuries and centuries. The money involved. His face was peculiarly ageless. Draco's palms pressed at his temples. We just robbed Saint-Germain. Oh my God, said Granger, hyperventilating anew. I stunned Saint-Germain. I insulted his wine. Saint-Germain wanted kisses from me. At least he thinks you're a good boy. A crotchy boy. With bad breath. Granger gasped for air between giggles. He thinks you're constipated. Draco couldn't breathe. You. The man is a legend and you. Bloody hell. Couldn't you have thought of something other than constipation? Stop. I am going to piss myself. Granger fell onto her back next to Draco on the bed, and they laughed in exhilaration until they could laugh no longer. Draco and Granger had made vague plans to return to the UK that very night, if they could, though they had both brought overnight bags just in case. The just-in-case materialized. The international flu closed at 7 o'clock in the evening. But as it happened, they lost track of time, lingering too long over tapas and full-bodied wines. I suppose a night in Spain won't be the greatest hardship, said Granger as they left the tapas bar. They wandered through the muggle part of the village, enjoying the Andalusian atmosphere. The ubiquitous geraniums in their terracotta pots, the impossibly narrow streets, the white homes piled atop one another, all higgledy-piggledy. They came to a night market, where Draco was easily distracted and had to be talked out of buying a variety of muggle objects, including a trombone, a thing called a lava lamp, and an inflatable boat. "'You do not need a boat,' said Granger, pulling Draco along and looking exasperated." Don't look so exasperated. I know you're fond of me. Am I? Are you sure? You said so today. Granger waved dismissively, but she was biting back a smile. Slip of the tongue. I rather like your slips of the tongue. You would. They climbed a winding cobblestone street to a mirador at the east end of the village, a lookout from which they could see the dark Andalusian countryside undulating gently away, and distant Malaga, and beyond that, the ink-black sea. To Draco, it seemed a good place for a bit of looking about, and perhaps an accidental reproachment along the railings. However, Granger decided to give an unsexy accounting of some of the horrors inflicted upon heretics during the Spanish Inquisition, and the moment passed. Granger led the way to the village's wizarding quarter to continue their exploration. It consisted of a single narrow street, accessed by touching one's wand to a whitewashed wall that grew into an archway. The village's magical inhabitants were holding a veritable party within— the street was aglow with carved turnips, pumpkins, and what looked like real human skulls. I didn't realize the Spanish celebrate Samhain, said Draco. Granger looked about with keen interest. No, listen to them. That's not Spanish. It's Gallego. There must be a group of them from Galicia. In the face of Draco's blank look, she added, Northern Spain, that's part of the Iberian Peninsula, which was once dominated by Celtic tribes, 
They still celebrate Samhain. Yes, look, they've got Kiamata. What was Kiamata? At first, Draco was convinced that it was made of the same stuff as the lava lamp thingy. It was a flaming punch of some sort, aromatized by citrus peels and coffee beans. As they walked along the street, they saw versions of the drink being prepared variously in emptied-out pumpkins or pots or cauldrons. White-clad Galician druids were chanting over the Kimada and setting fire to the drink, creating gorgeous blue flames. Some were counting to three as they tipped back their glasses. Some of the druids chanted in Gallego, some in Spanish. Of the latter, Draco could catch snippets of the phrases, incantations about black magic, freedom from evil, and purification. A friendly druid spotted them and waved the bemused-looking foreigners over. She handed Draco and Granger a small, espresso-sized cup each, waving away their offer of payment. She held up three fingers. You must finish it in three. Draco and Granger each took a first sip. It was a heavy drink. Hot brandy, caramelized sugars, and rich aftertaste of coffee. The druid nodded. The first banishes evil. Drink again. They drank again. The second removes prejudice from the mind, said the druid, tapping at the side of her head. One more. They finished their cups. The last awakens the passion in the soul, said the druid, pressing her hands to her chest, and then said, Blessed Samhain, and turned away to set her cauldron on fire again. Music began to play, and the party turned raucous. Have your passions been awakened? asked Draco over the music. Oh, yes, this is paving the way for all sorts of debaucheries, said Granger. Draco smirked at her. She laughed and flushed about the cheeks, looking away. They meandered back to their hotel room. Draco said he wished he had asked for the recipe for the drink. The addition of the coffee beans was brilliant. Granger was more interested in the bits of incantation they had heard, its provenance and history, and whether it too could be traced back to the ancient Celts. At the hotel, they each had a shower. Draco thought he still smelled of dog. Granger said she still reeked of Draco's cologne, and it was unbearable. Draco took offense and flung a pillow at her. As midnight approached, and amongst much yawning from Granger, they changed into their sleeping things. Draco got into bed. Also, by the way, there was only one bed, because obviously. Granger was wearing a negligee. This was going to be fine. Granger stood at the foot of the bed, wand in hand. She looked terribly focused, as though she was calculating long division. Then, Draco, being the first-class grade-A 24-carat right royal Burke that he was, said, I don't mind sharing the bed. Granger looked conflicted. Not convinced that that would be sensible. It is far too small in here to transfigure another. I could make it work. I promise I shan't steal the blankets. That is hardly what's giving me pause. What is giving you pause, then? Granger took a moment to answer. The Kiamata. Oh, what debaucheries are you afraid of? Her bravado was always a safe bet. It paid off. Granger narrowed her eyes at him, then climbed into the bed beside him and slid between the white sheets. Draco did not look down, because her negligee rode up as she did, and it was better not to. He looked at her instead. What? asked Granger. It is terribly humanizing to see someone in a bed, said Draco. His chin popped on his hand. I had become convinced that you were something else. Something else? A nymph, if you must know. Granger looked amused. Oh, a vindictive one, one who might transfigure an errant man into a mushroom or something. Granger scoffed and waved her wand to turn off the lights. I can aim for bigger and better things than transforming naughty men now. Oh? Hmm, I know exactly where Saradwin's cauldron is. Dangerous. Yes, likewise with you in the violet flame. You'll tell me when you're ready for the next heist. 
Perhaps, when this is all over, we ought to go hunting for the fleece. I am entirely at your disposal, said Draco. There was a smile in Granger's voice in the dark. Brilliant. Silence fell. Draco was a good boy, even when he was not a dog. He stayed well on his side of the bed. He did not allow his mind nor his hands to drift towards the soft warmth near him. He behaved like the perfect monk he was, lying unmoving and staring at the ceiling and not thinking about Granger. It had been a long day, and the excitement and the alcohol gave way to fatigue. They slept an hour or two, only to awaken to the sound of the shutters banging open and closed. A chill wind played about the window. A rustle beside Draco told him that Granger was awake, too. She sat up and turned to the window, half asleep, wonder-eyed. The wind blew, which whispers through the cobblestone streets. The night sky was heavy with the press of clouds. The sea beyond the village foamed, cresting in high waves that hung in the air for silent seconds in a hoist of white, unearthly things. It was Samhain night. The dead awakened. Souls wandered. Portents gleamed. The veil between worlds grew thin. Boundaries grew porous. Thresholds disappeared. Things could span gaps. Things could be between. Granger settled onto her side and looked at Draco. One of the straps of her negligee had slipped down in her sleep. He reached out with a single finger and pulled it back up. He let his finger drag into a long touch. Her eyes were clear. They could blame the Kimada all they liked, but they were both perfectly sober. Her delicate hand made its way to his face and pushed a strand of his hair back into place. It was Samhain night. The veil between worlds grew thin. Tonight, terrible incompatibilities mattered less. Violent polarities softened. Universes could collide and pass through one another, the stars of one lingering longingly into the light of the other. Perhaps there was a place for them to meet in the in-between. He caught her hand before she could pull it away. She watched him, curious, wondering. He pressed a kiss to her knuckles, then to her open palm, then to the inside of her forearm, where a desecration was carved. Through the thin skin, there he felt her heartbeat, too slow, still for his ring to echo, but enough for his lips to feel. He kissed unvoiced things into her scar, regrets, sorrows, confessions. Her eyes were dark and soft. Her fingers found the rough flesh that delineated the remains of his mark. She pushed her cheek to it with her eyes closed. His heart was full. He felt her breathe against it, then the press of warm lips. She came closer, or he did. He didn't know. All he knew was that her mouth was now there, inches from his. There was the pull. There was the wanting to fall. He propped himself onto an elbow and lifted her chin to him. They hung there in that place of equilibrium, between the known and the unknown between the never and the not yet. Now when the air grew rare. Now the only breath worth breathing was the other's. He brushed his lips against hers. He would have let the matter lie there, if it had been her wish. Then she pressed her own kiss into his mouth. They met again, together this time, and their breaths came faster. Her hand slipped up the nape of his neck. He pulled her towards him bodily to close the in-between. They did not speak. Speaking would make it real, and this was not real. It was Samhain night. They were wandering souls amongst many wandering souls, seeking solace as a moment of bliss. The warmth of her leg was flung over his hip. His hand caressed the skin of her thigh, unable to distinguish the silk of skin beneath his palm from the silk of the negligee across his knuckles. She was all softness, all give. 
His hand grabbed at the arse that had taunted him too many times. He dug possessive fingers into it. Slow in that in-between, slow in that uncanny night, they pressed out their want onto the other's lips. Things that had burned low kindled into life. They heaped kisses upon kisses, hot, open mouth, touching tongues and teeth. He pulled her on top of him, long-dreamt dream. She kissed her way down his neck. He left the world altogether, then in a sweet euphoria. When he returned, his pajamas were being unbuttoned in a deft sequence from his throat, down, down, down. Draco felt the brush of her hand against his erection, but he did not want that yet. He wanted her. He pulled her back up towards him and loosened the straps at her shoulders. The negligee felt about her hips in a silken puddle. He adored. He kissed the smooth underside of one breast, then the other, then wet her nipples with tongue and the heat of his mouth. As he went, her breath came faster. He felt a matching dampness where she sat against his stomach, and another where his cock strained in his pajamas. Draco's fingers were under the negligee now. He tugged her knickers off. The negligee followed, and then, there she was, the nymph, naked and on top of him, and he didn't need anything beyond this, except to see her finish above him. He propped his head up with a pillow against the wall and moved her closer to his face, with insistent hands against her arse. She clambered forwards, one hand against the wall and the other on his shoulder, and pressed herself, gorgeous and wet and tender, against his mouth. The scent of her would have been enough for him to pull himself off in three strokes, if he'd wanted to. He tasted her, slid a finger into her, and felt her clench. A second finger joined the first. They fell into a rhythm of him suckling and kissing, and rocking her hips against fingers and tongue. One hand pressed against the wall, and the other in his hair. Her breaths came heavy, and then, so did she, with a gasped-out groan and a long shudder that pinched Draco's knuckles together. The ring on his hand came to life, echoing the pitch of her racing pulse. She held herself up, one hand against the wall, one squeezing his shoulder for a quivering moment, before falling on top of him to catch her breath. She slipped his hand into his pajamas and stroked himself as she lay on top of him, his fingers wet and sticky and smelling of her. His eyes were bliss-filled and dark. She tugged at his pajamas. He kicked them off. She put a knee on either side of his hips, and he pushed himself up and into her. She pushed her mouth against his. He slid into her halfway. The heat and snugness wanted to undo him. He trembled, restraint, want. She spread her knees wider. He watched their joining, the way he opened her, the way she inched him in with these unhurried ups and downs, the way she left him glistening. Again they found a rhythm, an in and out strewn with wet kisses and gasping breaths. Above him, the gorgeous sight of her arcing upwards, her breasts, her parted lips. Every roll of her hips pulled him in closer, and closer, until he was at the edge, panting. She came down, clenched around him, and he went over and emptied himself into her in jerky spurts, his hand clutching at her thighs. He reeled into some in-between for a long moment afterwards, neither here nor there, a place of pleasure and twitching aftershocks and joined pulses racing through their rings. She laid herself next to him, her head against his shoulder. From there, he could observe the rise and fall of her breasts and the path down to her stomach that he wished to follow with his mouth. None of it had happened, and it was not real. A sleepy hand caressed his hair. He ran his fingers along her hip. They fell into a light doze. Draco woke up hard again, perhaps an hour later, and nudged her, and found her receptive, 
and made his way down that path between her breasts with his mouth. It was Samhain night. The dead were living, and the living went again and again to their little death.